Hello, I'm Alex and I'm here with my husband Shane. The babies are in bed, the cat is in her room, and we are so glad that you could join us for happy hour on this Family Tree Podcast, episode 53. Hello. Hello. Three guests this episode. Three big ones. Would you call it a supersode? I'd call it a supersode. Some people might say, Shane, why so long of an episode? <laughs> and uh, I guess the reason I like the long episodes is from my experience listening to podcasts, mm-hmm. Sometimes I like the guests that a show has. Right. Sometimes I don't. I hate waiting that extra week when I don't like a guest or I'm not into a guest, I should say. So when we started the pod, I was like, let's try to mitigate that as much as possible. Yeah. So if sometimes people are into more of an expert guest, let's have that on a show and kind of more fun guests and maybe kind of a balance of both. And on top of that, we just want to hang out with you for a little while longer. So... Invite us in your lives, sit down, do what you like to do before you listen to a podcast and get ready because this is a long one and it's it's a good one. We have Maz Jobrani and he is an actor, he's a comedian, he's been in a ton of stuff. If you don't recognize his name, Google it, look him up and you're 100% going to recognize him. So a lot of his stand-up stems from the fact that he's an immigrant, he's Iranian. In fact, his stand-up special is actually called Immigrant. Yeah, and he talks about what it's like essentially being an American immigrant. And it's hilarious. It's, you know, politically leaning. It's so relevant today, and it has been the entire time he's been here. And he talks about how it's even been more relevant since 9-11, since he's Middle Eastern. But amazing talk. He knows his shit, and he's just a great chat although he's a comedian what i liked about him was he's not always going for the joke Mm -hmm. you know i used to watch like old like robin williams interviews or jim carrey and they would just be so ridiculous you couldn't even (laughs) like jim carrey obviously now you can settle him down but with Moz, he just let the conversation go where we wanted to and he could talk endlessly about almost any subject it seemed like so very easy on us as interviewers because he would answer three questions that we had in our list just within the the first question we we asked him no i i loved having him on i could have talked to him forever and i was so nervous beforehand because he's a big deal and he's gotten interviewed by like the big wigs the late night guys that are actually famous so the fact that we were talking to him did have me nervous but it went off without a hitch it was really great i consider myself apolitical although these times it's kind of like you're forced into politics Mm -hmm. because things kind of transcend it and it's more of like your moral compass it seems like yeah. more so still i was so nervous that i was going to look or sound dumb in front of him and you said you might have to leave because <gasps> the baby because of the baby so you're like shane you might have to handle this one <laughs> i was like shitting my pants i was like okay i'm like just leave your notes there and i'm tr- i'm trying to look at your notes and it's going to be hard for me to pretend i'm asking questions that you wrote and they're all in point form so thank god that didn't happen and you were able to have my back and i was able to pretend i was intellectual at all no you were great you were great so after Moz, we've got blake horseman so it's from the bachelor from the bachelor uh, from, or the bachelorette i guess bachelorette and then bachelor in paradise yeah i kind of just call them all the bachelor but this is an area i was a little more comfortable in and it's funny because we not that we planned to ambush him but <laughs> but he did stand us up once so when you get stood up for an interview the second time you're a little bit more aggressive, I find. This yeah. has happened to us twice. Fewer softballs. Fewer softballs. So the one time he just kind of forgot that 
had an interview he didn't put mm-hmm. in a schedule and we were like you know let's just grill him a little bit let's get into the stagecoach stuff let's call him out on everything and see how he handles it like you know playful but we're serious yeah. too and then we noticed on his instagram story because we conducted this interview on labor day like labor day so it's labor day weekend and he's a younger guy and he's out and about and he's having like a boat party oh they were getting hammered. with all the bachelor people and we're like He's he's not gonna he's not gonna show up for we, this. One. We were interviewing him in the morning. In the morning, yeah. So we're watching his Instagram stories, and he has this one where uh, I guess a film crew from CBS or NBC or something yeah, yeah. was NBC. following him, and everyone's wearing their face masks while they're filming it. And then the second the camera stops rolling, everyone takes off their face. They're masks. like making out. No, everybody's <laughs> not so making not out. making out, but like everybody is, you know, arm in arm. They're hugging, and it was just like any kind of party you'd see before COVID times. And it was it was hilarious. It looked like a great time, and I was slightly jealous. So I'm like, Alex, we got to call him out on everything. I'm kind of a, a not vengeful, what's yeah, the word? Yeah, slightly vengeful. No, not vengeful. I like re- revenge. Is that the same thing? Yeah. I like revenge. So I'm like, <laughs> Alex, you got to call him out. And I've done this a couple times with Alex, but I, I really mean slip it into the middle of the interview. Mm-hmm. Alex, right off the top, she's like, Blake, Noticed you weren't wearing your masks yet on camera. You were for NBC. Hey, listeners, you know how I feel about COVID uh, precautions. So it's like the, the, right off the top. It's like one of the first questions we ask. And Blake, I can see why he was selected for all these reality shows because mm-hmm. he handles everything. He he doesn't. He's not evasive. He's yeah. honest. He answers everything head on. And we ask them. Everything you'd ever want to know about Stagecoach. We brought up some stuff that Wells had uh, told us about Mm -hmm. Blake or had mentioned. And all of Blake's reactions are just real. And Mm -hmm. he's not putting on a facade. And on his Instagram, sometimes he feels like he's being like, guy, smiley, nice guy. But he's totally a real dude. And I really respected him about that for this interview. Well, one thing that I really loved about the Blake interview. So he got really raw about like he had PTSD after coming off of Bachelor in Paradise. And he was getting bullied from producers on the show, from other castmates. And then by people in the real world on the Internet, social media, whatever. And he just talks to us a lot about mental health and about what he went through. So even if you're not a Bachelor person, Shane and I were talking about how great this interview is just kind of as commentary on like the human condition like relationships you know how we react from our fall from grace and things like that and it's, it's really fascinating and what if one of the biggest dating faux pas of your life was captured yeah. on film and made you look like an asshole the situation it seemed like it was more of a 50 50 type situation where both parties were somewhat in the wrong in, mm. in some ways but Blake got the brunt of it and it was edited and publicized to make him look like the villain. Yeah. So we get into was he edited that way? Can you edit a person to look bad on The Bachelor? Because when we talked to Wells earlier, like we've interviewed Wells twice, and Wells had a theory that you can't be, be- edited to look bad. It's either your true character is being yeah. brought out in the edit or it's not. And uh, Blake had some things to say about that. Anyway, it's an interesting no, interview, yeah, to say the least. Definitely check it out. And lastly, we are closing with Dr. Nicole Hyatt. So she is the founder of COPE, which is the Center of Perinatal Excellence. And Perinatal? Perinatal. Oh. So it's like after the baby comes out. But she focuses on pregnant women, too. So maybe I'm getting the mix up of the term perinatal and it means something different but she focuses on the emotions and the mental and physical well-being of 
new parents, new mothers, new fathers, their relationships together. And she's just full of a lot of fascinating advice and tips for you know, first time parents for couples that are feeling like they have a bit of a strain on their relationship since their kid has come into the mix. So highly recommend listening to her. She is a wonderful expert to have on. She really kind of rounds this out. And I really, on this interview, a lot of them, I feel like, oh, I'm not always bringing my A game. But on this one, I felt sharper than usual. Yeah, you you were good. Alex, you're such a liar. What? I sat out this entire interview. I know, you took the baby. Oh, then why'd you play? Okay, you know what? You're just a phony. It. No, I You're just a phony. It. I said it. I said it in not the right tone. Okay. So that was supposed to be a joke tone? That's okay. It's funny. No, it's it's not. even funnier because you played it so straight. No, it's not funny. Normally, you're not that good at doing uh, dry humor. Okay. So <laughs> whether you're laughing your head off at home or not, point is, this was one of those situations where I had to leave for the entire mm-hmm. interview because... Betty was acting up and, you you know, before each interview, we make the decision who's going to leave when uh, the baby starts acting up or if the baby starts acting up. And this is just what it's like when you have a newborn for the first two months. But we do have a bunch of interviews next week and we have Nona coming over. So we're not going to run into that problem. Yes. And please do check out Dr. Nicole Hyatt's interview as you know, whether you are pregnant, whether your kid is a week old or whether your kid is two years old. I can guarantee that you will What if you don't have a kid, is it? Well, if you're planning on it, I think that it'll give you resources to help prepare you for when you want to make that decision. What if you never want to have a kid? Just stick with the Blake interview? No, I'd listen to her because then maybe you could get tips on how to help people in your life that are having kids. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Good insight. I'm not sure if anyone's telling their friends about this podcast, but if there was ever a time to do that, I would do it now. Do it now. Because we have some... Pretty amazing guests coming up. I'm talking from Emma Watkins from The Wiggles to Simon Rex, a.k.a. Dirt Nasty. We really do have an amazing lineup coming up. We have Alyssa Milano, Kirk oh, Cameron. Like. It's it's a great mix. And basically, you want to look cool by getting on the ground floor of this podcast takeoff. So I say tell all your friends, be the influencer of your group, and uh, get them on for the ride. That was... <laughs> It's been a long day, you guys. But anyway, Shane, it has been such a long day. Let's... Cheers the drink. (laughs) Cheers. So tonight we are drinking what's called a Seedlip Garden Booch. So we've got Seedlip Garden 108, and I mix it with a little kombucha and some mint. What do you think? (laughs) You mix it with kombucha and some what? Mint. Oh, I thought you said mint. (laughs) Ew, I don't know what that is. I was like, what? Uh, Okay, yeah. This one's amazing. I love yeah, this drink. Yeah, it's nice. So it's called what? A mooch? garden booch. Garden booch. That's garden just booch. the best name of the season. It's so much drink. fun to say. Garden booch. And I'm so glad we're drinking this. It it Because I have an announcement to make. Oh. I want to not drink alcohol as much. We've been drinking our seed lip drinks. But then there'll be a glass of wine. And I don't mind the odd glass of wine. But it's just every night it's been slipping in there. And I feel like a, a meme or something like wine o'clock or like I just. So wait, you don't like having one glass of wine at nighttime? No, I do like it. But what I don't like is having one glass of wine at nighttime every night of my life. Oh, okay. Because for me, abstaining makes me appreciate when I do have it. Like if I eat a little, like let's say trick or treat bag mm-hmm. of chips every night, the chips like like I'll, I'll say this. We used to eat an Eggo waffle every day. Yeah. 
and it kind of lost its luster after three months. That's, that's how we started quarantine. We started- and you're the one who stopped it. I was still kind of in ego mode. Yeah, no, you know what? I was just like, okay, where can I cut the treats in my life? I'll cut the morning ego in favor of some healthy oats. Right. So what I want to do now to kind of like get me excited of, to, and appreciate alcohol is like not sober October, but from now <laughs> till November, yeah, whatever you want to call this, I just don't want to drink alcohol till November 1st. Can we start tomorrow? Because we have half of a bottle of red wine that we need to finish tonight. Okay, fine. <laughs> and <laughs> I know your ploy, though, Alex. What's my ploy? Well, you use alcohol as a seduction tool. Yes or no? No. Have I come on to you at all this past week where we had wine every single night? No, but answer this yes or no. Honestly. Yeah. Do you use the alcohol to get me lubricated so I come on to you? Yes or no? Honestly. Not consciously, no. No. Um, I feel like you're lying. No. I I don't even remember the last time that that happened. So it's like, I mean, if if you think that would work, then... I'll go for it tonight. Yeah, it'll work. We're doing it tonight. <laughs> Both drinking the alcohol and it. That's right. I'm ta- uh, for the listeners who don't know, I'm talking about sex. But wait, 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 wait. Sex aside. So no drink. Like You don't want to have like a single glass of wine until November? No, I just want to clear my head. And to be honest, I you know, we do these reads for Seed Lip. And it, we, we went after them for a sponsorship for a reason. And I do find it, it does honestly relax me the same. Mm-hmm. I like my non-alcoholic beer. I like C-Lip. And I found my, the healthiest phase in this whole quarantine period was about two months in. Yeah. I just cut the booze, stopped drinking, started drinking non-alcoholic. And I felt so healthy both yeah. in mind and body. Yeah, no, I like it. And for for listeners who are new and just popped on, Seedlip is a non-alcoholic spirit. So that's why, you know, Shane is suggesting this. But it tricks your brain into thinking you are having a a real alcoholic drink. And I don't know if it's like chicken and egg, like because it tastes like real alcohol that my brain actually gets fooled. Or if you've never had an alcoholic beverage in your life, it would still do the same. I I don't know. I think a portion of it, though, is like going through the ritual of just making something nice for yourself so i could get on board with that if we chose to make like you know put a little effort into it when we sat back and had our like seed lip cocktail like our non-alcoholic cocktail for the night because the ritual relaxes me like even though it's a five second ritual opening a bottle of wine and pouring it just feels nice it's like pouring your coffee in the morning you know i like it i could replace that with making like a non-alcoholic cocktail. Like for I sure. have a I have a ritual of a Coors Edge mm-hmm. for lunchtime area, like one, which is non-alcoholic. Non-alcoholic course. makes me feel like I'm being a little naughty. <laughs> like I'm like, oh, it's a work day, but I'm crushing a brew, even though there's no alcohol. And then at nighttime, it's my relaxing yeah. drink. So yeah, and I'm not saying I'm never gonna have a drink again. I'm just saying till November. And what yeah, about Thanksgiving? Have, I'll have a glass of wine at Thanksgiving. Okay. Yeah. Or a, a drink of scotch with your dad. Okay, so I will get on board, but not This so... isn't me asking you oh, to get I know on board. That, I know that, I know that, but I like to get on board. I like when we're doing the same thing at the same time. It's fun, it gives us something to talk about. And I always feel like we're doing some, like if we're doing a challenge together, it feels more fun. You know what I mean? And plus, I don't want to sit here nursing a glass of wine and look at you and feel bad for you. So I'm going to get in on this too. But don't but feel bad, because so... I don't feel bad. I almost feel bad... 
for you. Why? Because when you're, if you're having a glass of wine, I'm like, oh, I, I don't necessarily think I want it tonight, but I want to have it so you don't feel alone. Oh, oh, geez. No, because I only, like, I'm happy having a little splash and, you know, okay. just the taste, but I will get in on it, just not so. Uh, and to me, this isn't a challenge, by the way. This mm-hmm. is like just, looking at it as a challenge actually creates a roadblock that I don't necessarily like. Yeah. This is just something I'm going to do. And it's not that challenging for me. Mm. Maybe for other people it is. But for me, it's not that challenging. I also wanted to update people on CBD. I've been taking it. And unfortunately, no, it does not work for me. I tried taking it in the day also. It exacerbated my anxiety. Both times I tried taking it during the day. Okay, wait. We haven't talked about this yet. What What do you mean? Like, what did it do? It made any like let's say i had a little bit of anxiety yeah and i was like ah, i'm gonna take some cbd especially you had a cavalcade of messages come in yeah. and oh, everyone so many. everyone had nothing but good things to say about cbd but you did get one message that said it made my anxiety worse yes and unfortunately that's the way my body reacts to it so i take it i was feeling a little stressed and then it just got 10 times worse and then i had like a bit of a breakdown and then I was like, eh, like when did this, this could be psychosomatic. Occur? It felt like I'd been crying all day, even though I hadn't. Like, oh. you know, that feeling when you're totally drained and yeah. you, the, the times in your life when you've cried more than ever. It felt like one of those moments. That's awful. And then, then I was like, yeah, this has to be isolated incident. Did it again. Got this same doomy, terrible feeling. Is that when we were like bickering? Too? No. Like you were on edge a little bit. Do you think that? Okay. So a lot of the messages I was getting from people were about... The fact that they're like, hey, you have to give it two weeks and work with dosage. How long has it been since you started? Two weeks. Oh, okay. And have you like been playing with the dose, like taking less, yeah. taking more? Yeah. Yes. I've done everything. In the daytime, I only took half. And at nighttime, I took full. I will admit at nighttime, it works a lot better. But I wake up with a little bit of a headache every time mm. and groggy. And you've been holding it because another big crop message as I was getting, they're like, okay, put it under your tongue for a certain amount of time. Yep. Weird. And nothing, eh? Because our neighbor across the street who made you the weed cream for your back to help your muscles, she was saying that it doesn't work for her either. And unfortunately, the weed cream doesn't. Like, I'm basically 80% weed at this point i'm rubbing <laughs> weed cream on my back and cbd and ingesting it with a little bit of thc apparently even though i didn't want thc nothing nothing's been working for me i'm still like in a lot of back pain and my anxiety is through the roof but i will say to help with all that we did hire an employee yes for uh times when just life's too stressful for getting the pot out at a normal in a normal manner. It takes so long to edit a podcast. So Shane does all that because I just I just don't know where I would even start. I'm not trained in that. So Shane spends so much time aside from his regular job and he spends all weekend editing the podcast. So it's a ton of work. And honestly, like if we just need to step back, because it's not like we can go anywhere, go out for dinner, do anything to really take the steam off. Is that what take the steam off? Blow the steam Blow off. the steam off yeah there's nothing we could really do outside of our home to blow the steam off so to blow off steam to blow off steam (laughs) so so getting an employee is really the only way to kind of help us do that so we could even just relax or vacation within our own home yeah so i haven't heard like this is the first time i've ever trusted someone her name's erica i really do Mm -hmm. uh i i know her from another podcast i work on so i trust her but if things sound a little weird let us know and her ass is fired because <laughs> this is the first time I've ever given anyone that trust. Yeah. 
No, ah. it's, it's a big thing. Yeah, that that's really helping with anxiety. I find Erica helps more than CBD. Um, Shane, just because you're saying the word a lot right now, since we realized that I said, have been saying for years, anxiety incorrectly, I've been saying it, anxiety. Have I pronounced it correctly once? You still say an. Mm-hmm. I've been I've been catching myself saying anxiety, and then I was just kind of hoping that the times I wasn't catching myself, I was saying correctly. No, you know, it's a been, hard habit. Yeah. Okay. Do you have anything you'd like to talk about? No. Yeah. Co- COVID. I have on my topic list. It's it's funny. People. Our big fear was people going back to daycare, and then mm-hmm. it it's spreading uh, again. And someone I know very close to me, their kid was in daycare two days. And then they think they the kid got COVID because another kid in the daycare like, got COVID. Actually tested positive for it. Yeah. And oh. then, so like the kid's friend tested positive for it. Then the kid had a fever. And I was like, day two, the kid got COVID. So That's a nightmare scenario. That's yeah. such a nightmare scenario. And it's so expected in a way. Like what's going to happen? Obviously, you know, a few people, a few sprinklings, like handfuls of people have it here and there. But then when we all start getting back together again, when high school kids get back into school like they are right now, thank God I'm not teaching and I'm on mat leave, of course it's going to start spreading. And like honestly, I don't know what I would do if I wasn't on maternity leave right now because that is, I'm a supply teacher still. So I I don't even have a classroom. I can't even work remotely. I don't, Mm -hmm. I just don't think I'd be able to get work. And I wonder what people with autoimmune are doing right now. Yeah, well, we had a solution to solve COVID and it was like the it's genius the government just says a day like okay on november 1st everyone has to go in their houses for 14 days and then they have like police officers making sure everyone's inside and they say okay if you can't afford food or anything we're going to give you rations and if you have no shelter we're having this open up stadiums yeah open up stadiums and then in 14 days after november then the whole country's cured Anybody who has it, it's gone. And everybody who does have it, they can make, you know, makeshift hospitals and everything in preparation for this. And then the entire, because you said the entire country, but then the entire world, if we were able to organize that, it's not going to go anywhere. And then we could resume operations and go back to normal. And I know that's so crazy and like so impossible, especially when you get to like impoverished nations. But it's like if we really want something to go, it's like within Canada. Is something like that so crazy to suggest to some degree? Because we don't want to deal with it. Our healthcare system can't deal with it. People complain about losing money with their businesses, rent, paying is hard, whatever, everything. It's like, well, let's do something drastic. Everybody lock yourselves up. Nobody freaking complain about it. And then it's done. Yeah. And if you're in a dire situation where you can't afford it, mm-hmm. the government subsidizes you in some way and provides you with food. And and you think that's got to be cheaper than paying CERB. Like that's our what the government's been giving yeah. people who have been losing work to COVID. That's got to be way cheaper than paying CERB to all the millions of people there. Yeah, instead of prolonging this very slow, torturous period, just have 14 intense days that are probably, you know, not very fun. And then it's over. What do you think? How do you think the QAnon people would react? I know that's like a US thing, this whole like conspiracy theory that COVID is a hoax. But there are people in Canada that believe in that, which is insane. So what do you think they try to organize and like fight against it? Well, if you make it a law somehow, I guess they would be arrested. Because a lot of these people, they don't like certain laws, but Mm -hmm. I feel like they abide by them. Yeah. Yep. So 
Yeah, I, I think it could work. I, obviously, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> it sounds ludicrous and ridiculous, but to me, what's even more ludicrous is this dragging out for another three years. Yes, and and wasting all the money on the payouts and the vaccines and everything. Let's just get it over with 14 days, 21 days. Let's extend it just to make sure. I and, think it's a good idea. and I'm sure there's a lot of like smart people listening who are like, "Oh, here's why they're idiots." And I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to hear that. And I'm, I'm open to it. And I, I believe that I am an idiot. Oh, 100. Let's talk to someone who's not an idiot right now. Let's go to Maz Jobrani. But first, Alex, can you tell us who we're supported by? We are supported by Mini Miosh. They're a Toronto-based brand that makes premium, organic, ethically made, and sustainable kids and babies clothes. And they're also the cutest thing you could probably put on Instagram. They have the best basics for your littles, and everything is made organically, sustainably, and because they're such quality, like they're amazing quality, you can pass them down from kid to kid, and everything's gender neutral. But let's face it, those Instagram likes will be coming in the truckload <laughs> once you get these clothes. Let's be honest here. Oh, it's true. Both it's things matter. I'm not saying one's more more important than the other but this is where both things meet in such a beautiful way sustainability and instagram likes cohesively. it's perfect it's perfect but mini miosh believes in quality over quantity and they're on a mission to leave the planet better off for our little ones than when they arrived on it so you can find the company online at minimiosh.com or at mini miosh on insta and facebook that's m-i-n-i M-I-O-C-H-E. And if you use the promo code ThisFamilyTree15 at checkout, you're going to get 15% off. And you're going to get a whole bunch of likes for those toddlers. <laughs> and we are also supported by... Routine. Deodorant is so tricky. The chemical kind is questionable and natural deodorants never work. A lot of deodorants don't work, natural or otherwise. But this one definitely does take my word for it i am a stress sweat man meaning i'm always anxious and i'm always thinking more doing nothing and just worrying than if i actually played like a game of basketball or tennis for oh, an hour you get stinky and i get stinky breastfeeding and being postpartum it's a stinky household or it was a stinky household until we started using routine so it's effective because they're made with antimicrobial ingredients and cool stuff like dietary magnesium which releases your armpits from the burden of those horrible stress sweats and postpartum sweats and if it doesn't work honestly send me a message dm me say shane you led me a straight because i guarantee you this works so get in touch with yourself and what works with your body with one of routine 16 unique scent blends in either a refillable glass jar which we use or a stick you can get these at routinecream.com and if you use the promo code this family tree 10 at checkout you'll get 10 percent off your entire order so that's routinecream.com and this family tree 10 now let's get to our interview with maz jabrani well, welcome, and uh, so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Where are you guys located? We're in Hamilton, which is just an hour outside of Toronto. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How is it? How is your COVID world versus Los Angeles, where we're? Uh, I mean, we're doing better now, mm -hmm. but we were doing pretty poorly before. It's it's better than yours, COVID wise. Mm -hmm. But uh, we, for us, things haven't changed since March because I have lupus, and our two month old daughter has lupus. So we are in crazy lockdown and we have been this whole time because I'm immunocompromised. So he's working from home. Yeah. But as far as general population mm -hmm. is doing, I think people are out and about now and, you know, kind of pretending that they're staying in small groups, but people are really yeah. straying from the 
the rules that were created. And I feel like there's going to be a surge, especially now that people have gone back to school. Mm-hmm. I feel like the kids yeah. are a real big conduit and carrier of COVID and, and they're most of them are asymptomatic. So I think what's going to happen here is what happened to Australia recently because they a few months ago, they had their kids yeah. go back to school and then there was a big boom and it got really crazy for them. Holy moly, yeah. what a world we're living in. How's it, how's it going for your kids doing school at home right now? They, I could tell they're, they're pretty uh, frustrated by it because, yeah. you know, when we did it in the spring, it was, um, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. So mm-hmm. I think that they felt, okay, this is temporary and they were good and their school was really good. And, and they, you know, even something as, as simple as PE where it used to be you go outside and play. Now they're doing, basically they're doing uh, CrossFit training or whatever, wow. you know, it's like, <laughs> all right, plank position. And the kids are like, plank, what are you talking about? <laughs> so they're, uh, they're, they're a little bummed out by it, but, yeah. but there's been, you know, we've been able to manage some play dates with other families and we try to keep them socially distanced. You know, they get a little mm. close and what have you, but, but at least there's some interaction going on. And then my, son's soccer team started doing um soccer practice on the beach which was really nice so oh that's awesome we'll see you know these poor kids now how's it for you because you do your podcast and everything do you do that from home or do you go to a studio i was going to a studio and i'm sure you guys have have encountered this as well it was when you're doing an interview, it's great to be able to jump on top of each other and go, yeah, but, and then get in. Yeah. Now with Zoom, it's like, here's my question. Now you answer. Now I go. And it's just, it's a little off and it's a, it's not as um, dynamic as you no. want it to be, you know? And obviously for standup, it's a whole different world. I mean, standup, I actually enjoyed some of the Zoom standups early on because you would unmute let's say 10 audience members and you get to see all the audience so you could do crowd work and people are like in their bed smoking a cigarette and you're like what is going on there (laughs) um but it would be nice to be able to go out and actually perform in a live audience that would be really nice i I bet yeah i didn't even know that there was zoom stand-up comedy happening like that do you ever have somebody do anything weird yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, so there's, you know, I'm sure other people have had a lot, but one of the early ones that I was on, there was all kinds of, you see people's homes. So you're seeing yeah. the background and you're going, oh, that person's got a lot of dishes, you know, and, <laughs> oh, that guy's got this. And and literally there was a lady kind of what looked like in a nightgown and she was like lighting a cigarette in bed and I'm going, and I wanted to comment, but I go, I don't, it kind of feels weird. Like she's putting her boob right into the whole thing. I'm like, what is going on? But to her credit, she was having a good time, just hanging out, laughing. Um, there's also been, I just did last weekend, my first drive-in comedy show. And that's really weird because people come with cars right. and they park and then you perform and they listen to the show on a specific radio station which I guess is interesting in a way, but again, live comedy requires, you know, laughter, mm-hmm. people hearing people laughing. And also for us, it's great when I hear the audience laughter. And so there was a, a, a row of cars in the front where people were allowed to come into their, the, the beds of their truck and set up chairs and watch from there. And they were laughing a little bit, but it's not the kind that you need to really feel like you're killing, 
you know? Yeah. So it was, it was very interesting. But it must be nice to get at the house. Cause like, I think, you know, we're doing Shane's working from home. Then we're doing this from home. And right now we have both kids napping, which is a fucking miracle. Cause that never happens at the same time. And it's, it's so hard to do all this. So for you, you're doing podcasts, you're doing comedy. Like, are you losing it a little bit trying to get all this done mainly from home? Somewhat. I mean, it becomes I, people. It's funny because uh, especially early on, um, I've heard other people talk about this, too, where they said people were saying that, well, now's the time to pick up that hobby and write that book and learn that instrument. And all of a sudden I go, no, my life is busier than ever because my kids are home They're Whenever there's a technical problem, they're coming to me. The house is falling apart because there's four <laughs> people going at it all day long. I mean, I told my mom, uh, my mom, that was a, <laughs> I told my wife, oh boy, I told my wife yesterday as I was fixing this lock uh, that had broken, I said, uh, I'm, I've become Handy Maz instead of Handyman Handy Maz. And it's funny because even in my Handyman phase, I was never that guy. I mean, I've always been, I've always been able to put a, you know, I could put the the uh, you know where the light switch is i can always replace the the cover for the a light plate, switch yeah. which is just screw and unscrew right mm -hmm. but if if the light ain't working i can't get into those wires and do what i'm what no i need way. to do so even when i fix things i don't fully fix them right so the the lock that i fixed it came, there, two of the windows had these locks that are you know little locks that broke so i so i got new ones and they weren't the same color so i told my wife i go listen i know we had white, but these are going to be kind of gold. She goes, that's fine. And then unbeknownst to me when I was installing them, the, the ones that I bought, they both come like it's, it's, it's unidirectional. So now you have one lock that, that like has a thing pointing down and another lock, something pointing up. It just, it just, it does, it doesn't quite work. So I've done that. My daughter, who's nine, has held on to her old blankets, so um, it was all—they were all ripped apart. Mm -hmm. So my wife bought her a new blanket, and she said, "Why don't you ask Daddy if he'll sew the old one onto the new one, so you have one on one side, one on the other side?" And I said, "Why not?" So I sat there for a few hours sewing blankets together. Good for you. So I've sewed, yeah. And then my son's hair was getting long, and so my wife said, "Do you want to take a shot at cutting it?" I said, "Sure." So I took what are my beard clippers, which are not great for cutting hair. And I tried to clip, I clipped a little bit. All that to say, I've taken on all these other things and then you're trying to do your work and then mm -hmm. you're trying to, you know, you're just busier than ever. Yeah. And the days kind of seem to be very groundhog day, like oh, yeah. they keep going in circles. And then all of that, like I was talking to another comedian friend who said, I'm busier than ever. I just can't figure out how to make money from it. That's the <laughs> only problem. I was just going to ask, are you able to make money or even like a, a, a healthy fraction of what you were making before? It is uh, much, much less than I was doing before. I, I'm fortunate that we were getting ready to do a remodel at our house. And um, so we'd set aside some money for that. And so that really helped us out the gate, not feel the mm. anxiety. I mean, I feel so... It's 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 heartbreaking to hear what people are going through and getting oh, yeah. evicted and all this other stuff. And I'm like, wow, we are lucky to have what we have. So some of that was able to help my wife, who is um, a lawyer by uh, you know by by training. She's a lawyer, but she's also helped a lot of companies with um, marketing and management, et cetera, et cetera. She had a friend who needed work, so she was able to go back to work with them, which 
has been good for us financially, but more importantly for her sanity, it mm-hmm. gives her something to do, which is fantastic. Um, and then for me, little things trickle in here and there. It's funny, like all of a sudden, cameo became this thing. I tell my wife, I go, I'm, I'm, I made a couple, I made two hundred dollars today. You know, nice. I was like, I did, you know, a few cameos. I'm making some money. So again, in terms of the actual finances, it's been very uh, slow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had, I have some projects I've been working on. We sold an animation show uh, as a pilot to Fox before the pandemic. So is that with Courtney Cox? Is the, is yeah, that- the Courtney Cox one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. So we've been working on that. Who knows where that will lead us, but we've been working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, a friend of mine, Al Madrigal, who's a stand-up comedian, he and Bill Burr have a company called all things comedy and they are producing a series of short films for Quibi and Al called me up. He goes, Hey, I got a part. Do you want to come play? And I said, sure. And it was interesting because it got me so excited to be like, Oh my God, I'm going to be on set again. And it made me think, you know what the advice I always give people, I always say, create your own opportunities. I go mm-hmm. write your own scripts, write your own stories, do it, do it, do it. So now I'm kind of in my head, I'm going, okay, I got to start writing some shorts and getting out there again, because yeah. just for the excitement of it, the pure excitement of, in this short that I'm doing, again, it's not a financial thing, but I'm playing a guy who runs into this girl who is his daughter, and they asked me, they go, do you know actresses that could play your daughter? And it was so exciting for me to even be in that world of like, oh, let me let me text some people who are of that age that I know that are actors, like they were looking mm-hmm. for, you know, late teens. So I know a couple of actors, you know, family friends who are actors. So it was just exciting to be in that world. So I've been inspired to get back to writing some shorts and, and I, I want, I really want to just do that. And again, there's no one's paying me for it. I just want to do it. Right. Yeah, no, that's, and that's the best part to be able to kind of take on those passion projects and we're busier than ever too. And it's crazy. Like I've had old man in the sea by Hemingway sitting beside me for the past three months. It's like 20 pages long and I still haven't finished it, but I want to get into because yeah. I remember watching you. I saw you on Better Off Ted years ago, and you've been an actor and a comedian. But when did you get into comedy? So I, so my family left Iran in late 1978, just as protests were happening that led to the 1979 revolution. And first of all, a lot of Iranians, you guys have a lot of them in Toronto, but a lot of Iranians that left as part of the first group around the time of the revolution. A lot of us didn't know that we were leaving Iran for good because I think that my parents had gotten used to if there was unrest, the Shah would quash it. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I think that's what they felt as well. So my father was on business in New York and he told my mom to bring me and my sister at the time we were six and eight, I think. He said, why don't you bring them for the winter break? It was, um, you know, November, December of of 78. He goes, bring them to New York for a couple of weeks. You guys will be here. Things will cool down. Then you can go back. Well, I always say we came and we never went back. So we packed for two weeks. We stayed for 40 whatever years. And that's a common story you run into. So my family comes to America and then we settle in Northern California, Marin County, Northern California. And I'm a kid and I'm you know, watching a lot of TV back then. And, and parenting now is very different than parenting back then. You know, you guys know as parents... It's like, read to your kid, even when the kid doesn't even know what you're reading. It's like, you know, I remember reading to my 
both of my kids when they were babies just trying to eat yeah. the book, you know, <laughs> but you got to do that and don't sit them in front of a screen until X, Y, and Z age. And, you know, it took us a while to be like, we're okay with them watching some cartoons or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was a kid, we land in America. My parents don't know what's going on. They're like, oh, there's a TV, go sit. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting in front of the TV and I'm, you know, watching Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker and Leave it to Beaver. You name it, I'm watching it. Hours and hours of television. And at some point, I stumble across Eddie Murphy. And this was early <laughs> 80s. And Eddie Murphy was a rock star. And I just fall in love with Eddie Murphy. And I'm going, oh, I want to be like this guy. And, 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 and all comedians. Like, I started watching all the comedy shows. Like, and again, back then, parents didn't pay attention to what you're mm-hmm. watching. So I'd be whatever, 10, 11, 12, watching Eddie Murphy was cussing. Uh, Sam Kinison, uh, Andrew Dice Clay, you name it, like HBO, Young Comedian Special. I'm watching all this stuff. I'm like, I want to be like that. But now the thing I ran into, which is a cultural thing, having immigrant parents, I think immigrant parents from Iran, India, China, a lot of these immigrant parents are very much hardcore about our kids got to be lawyers, doctors, engineers. Yes. Right. So when I was telling my family I wanted to do this, they were like, they would laugh in my face. They were like, no, you're not going to be a lawyer or a doctor. You know, so I started doing plays at the age of 12. And when I got on stage in my junior high school musical, I just fell in love with being on stage. I go, this Mm -hmm. is what I want to do. So then I just flirted with it the rest of my life. I would, I would do the plays and then I would try and please my parents by being on some path for something. And matter of fact, when I went to college, um, I studied political science because I thought that that would lead to becoming a lawyer, but I kept finding acting classes. You know, I kept wanting to do it. And it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties, 26 years old, living in Los Angeles. I had dropped out of a PhD program in political science. Um, again, having, trying to please my parents. And, um, I, I was talking to this guy at that time. He was in his sixties. His name was Joe Ryan. Um, and I was working in an advertising agency. And Joe saw a video of a play I was doing that was a comedy. And he goes, hey, you're good at this. Have you thought about doing this? I go, Joe, my whole life I've wanted to do this, but my parents keep telling me no. And I said, I'm going to save up some money. And when I'm 30, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and be a professional comedian and actor. And Joe was in his 60s. He goes, listen, when I was in my 20s, there was some stuff I wanted to do. And I never did it. He goes, if you really want to do it, you should do it. And I remember I was 26 years old at that point, And it was a light bulb moment. And I go, you know what, Joe, you're right. And I got right back into improv and took some improv classes, took some stand-up classes. And that was 22 years ago. And I haven't looked back. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, I'm always curious about the impetus of comedy and what drives a person to even be comedic. For me, uh, not that you've seen me be funny right now, but I feel like my impetus was being bullied and being such a big self-defense mechanism was to do the joke or be self-deprecating before someone could get to me. Now I'm wondering, being an immigrant coming over when you're six, one, what was the racism level like? And two, were you bullied uh, because of uh, being from somewhere else? And do you think that was the impetus? I think that that's a big impetus, actually. It's, it's, it's really easy to laugh things off, right? Whether it's being bullied or whether it's something that's, um, that's sad that happens to you. We've seen it. I see it. I still see it where something sad is happening in someone's life. And rather than going into the sadness, they kind of laugh it off. Like, oh, <laughs> of course, it's going to happen to me again. I'm yeah. going to lose my house. You know, people, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, geez, you know, you, you see people deal with it like that, right? So definitely, I feel there was a sense of bullying because, you know, I always point this out. Iranian immigrants of the late 70s, early 80s, we're one of the only immigrant groups to come to America. And as soon as we landed in America, the country that we left and the government that we were fleeing took Americans hostage. So all of a sudden, you come to America, like Americans don't know what's what. Like when you first land, they're like, what? Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia? We don't even know what it is. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the hostage crisis happens, they're like, you know, goddamn Iranians, you know. So and then so then they start beating us up for the crimes of a government that we're fleeing. So it's like, we're on your, I'm on your side. And they, they, they didn't care. So I have now spoken to a lot of people who were here at that time. Matter of fact, I just did an uh, episode. Padma Lakshmi has a, a great show. If people want to watch it, it's called Taste the Nation. It's on Hulu. And she did an episode on Westwood and, and, and Iran, Iranian cuisine. And I was one of the people she interviewed in it. And she goes around to different communities in America and talks about the cuisine. And in that same episode, she was talking to a restaurant owner in Westwood. And this guy tells a story. He goes, yeah, when I first came to Los Angeles, it was around the time of the hostage crisis. And he goes, I was Iranian, I had a Persian restaurant. And he goes, one time I come out of my store and there's like a mechanism there. And basically someone, I think it set like a bomb nearby or something. I mean, it was that kind of uh, um, sentiment mm-hmm. against Iranians. I have Arab friends who tell me they go, you guys, because of Iranians, I was getting shit. Like Arabs were, were getting stuff. So I remember, first of all, I remember there was a there were some kids that would call us, they would call us fucking Iranian back then. They'd be like, you fucking Iranian. So I remember being around the fourth grade and there were sixth graders that would pick on us and call us fucking Iranians. Um, I have friends that would get bullied and beaten, you know. Uh, I've heard of all stuff like that happening. And you, Shane, are, are spot on because I don't know if, I think, I think at some point, in your comedy career, you step back and you go, what was my motivation to be yeah. here, mm-hmm. right? And I would say in reflecting on it, I realized when I first came to America, there was three things that helped me blend in. And and, and also you got to realize you're leaving, you're, a, you're six or seven or eight, whatever those ages are, and you're coming to a new country. You've, you're, you're, you're away from your friends, you're away from your family, like, you know, you're with your immediate family, you, and it's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it, it's a shock in general. So you're looking to make friends. So what do you do? One thing I did was I was good at sports. So that helped. So on the kickball court, I was good. Um, Then the other thing I I realized in in reflecting upon those years, um, I had a sweet tooth and my mom would take me grocery shopping with her and she would get a cart of groceries and I would get a cart of like Twinkies and Starbursts (laughs) and M&Ms. And it's crazy because she would send me to school. I'd have like one bag was my lunch, drink, and snack. The other bag was just candy. And I remember handing out candy. So I realized at a young age, I learned how to bribe my way into friendships. Yeah. Um, and the third thing was the comedy. Exactly what you just said, like being funny, deflecting by being funny. And also probably watching these cartoons. When you go back and watch like a Bugs Bunny or Woody Woodpecker, these mm-hmm. things, those are all very funny. Mm-hmm. And so you realize, oh, okay, I was picking up cues, comedy cues as well from there. So definitely, I think that it was a um, coping mechanism from a young age. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And since 9-11 happened, like a lot of your comedy is centered around, you know, being Iranian, being an immigrant, your wife's family. Um, I was listening to a funny piece about your kid's nanny being Guatemalan or whatever. And do you find that it's still kind of like a coping mechanism to deal with the xenophobic U.S., like the general population? And has it been like that since 2001 or did it, you know, did that change your comedy? I think it's not that it's a coping mechanism as much anymore, as much as it's me trying to normalize and say, look, I'm like you. So I look at guys like Richard Pryor and how he helped bring the black experience to a more widespread audience and go, I'm like you, even Dave Chappelle. Now you watch him. It's like, you know, he, sure. He's going to talk about race stuff, but he's also going to talk about whatever his kids or, or whatever it is. And so similarly, I think early on in my stand-up career, first of all, they say, talk about whatever interests you, right? So, you know, one guy goes up and talks about breaking up with his girlfriend. I'm going to talk about my kids. I'm going to talk about my own community and the way they relate to me. Um, I, I quickly started talking not just about Iranians, but immigrants, because I feel like a lot of immigrants have similar things going on culturally. And I feel that whether you're an immigrant or you're not an immigrant, you either know people or you understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So even sometimes when I talk about like, you know, my mom saying this, something crazy, a lot of people, whether you're immigrant or not, will be like, yeah, my mom says stuff like that too. Um, I think part of it is just normalizing. You know, when we first did the Axis of Evil comedy tour, which um, Mitzi Shore, who's the owner of the comedy store in the year 2000, she was Jewish and she was watching CNN and there was the latest conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And she goes, I think there's going to be a need for a positive voice for people from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So she wanted to do shows with comedians that are either Muslim or Middle Eastern and put them together and just present us with, with laughter. So I remember when we did Access of Evil and it was after September 11th, we started getting emails from people. Some people, I, I remember specifically, some, some people wrote things like, Hey, after September 11th, I really hated people from the Middle East and watching you guys do stand-up comedy made me realize, wow, you guys are just like anybody else. And, and I appreciate that. And, and part of it was not just seeing us, but also when the camera would go to the audience and you would see people from Middle Eastern backgrounds laughing, mm. you go, I think Americans weren't used to seeing that. Yeah. So it's not so much coping as trying to just say, Yo, we are like you. Like, that's why I called my Netflix special Immigrant, because in the elections of 2016, the word immigrant had become such a derogatory yeah. term because of Trump that I was trying to remind people, I'm an immigrant. Yeah. I'm here. I have no accent. I pay my taxes. I'm a good person. <laughs> I feel like I've contributed to America. And when I go to my audience in the show, in the immigrant special, you see there's Chinese Americans and Russian Americans and Armenian Americans. And I go, it's fine. We're all, no one's here to, mm -hmm. to, to, to kill you. We're here to be a part of this, this society. So I think that's kind of a message that's underneath it. Mm -hmm. And so your children, obviously they were born here, so they're not immigrants, but I'm sure a lot of people just consider them immigrants just for how they, how they look. Right. Is there racism to this day with the younger generation in their school or have things changed and they're so woke they don't even think to be racist? 
I think it's a little more of the latter. Um, however, you're right. I mean, listen, Kamala Harris, who is now the vice presidential candidate, when she first was announced, there was these things, these little rumors swirling around being kind of, again, uh, supported with Trump in a, in a kind of a passive way yeah. that maybe she's not legally allowed to be president because her mother was born in India and her father was born in Jamaica. Now she was born in Oakland and she is an American citizen. Like you said, she's kind of like my kids. Um, And so there are obviously always going to be groups, you know, my kids are kind of tan and they could be Latino. They could be Indian. They could be somewhere Middle Eastern, whatever. There's definitely going to be groups that look at them in a, in a, in a bad way. Uh, my wife and I were in Hawaii with our kids and my nephew. And there was this lady who my wife was, my wife was like, I, I swear the lady was racist. And I go, I don't think she was racist, but the lady was kind of like implying that my nephew stole a towel or something from her chair by the pool. And I go, he's 10 years old. Why would he do that? And I get into an argument with her. And my wife's like, that's the kind of person she saw the color of the skin. I go, I don't know. Maybe you're right, but I'm not sure. Now, when you come to the actual kids, mm-hmm. what's interesting is our neighbors, our old neighbors, uh, the father was black, mother was white. The kids were best friends with my kids. Um, we have other family friends that are you know, mixed races. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I think our kids are super woke to the point where I was talking about that those neighbors one time, like just to, at the house. I was like, "Yeah, you, you know, Anne's Anne's white, Kevin's black," and my kids kind of looked at me in a weird way. And I go, "What's wrong?" They go, "He's not black. He's African American." I go, "Really, guys? Come on!" So I am hopeful. I am. Mm-hmm. I, I my kids, at least the kids growing up in cosmopolitan places, give me hope. Yeah. That said, there are. Still, I mean, obviously, it's it's you're, you know you're uh, um, you're a uh, um, what's what's the terminology I'm looking for? The, you're you're a result of your environment, right? Mm-hmm. So, I do a joke about how that same kid, but my neighbor's kid, his cousin who lives in Wisconsin, had come to visit over a Christmas break once, and these guys were like around eight or so. And I took them to go see a movie and we all go to a movie theater and it's all these kids and we're washing our hands before we go into the uh, theater. Um, and as we're washing our hands, an Indian Sikh walks by with the turban, washes his hands and he walks out. And the kid from Wisconsin like lost his shit. He turned to me and he's like, that guy was, that guy was ISIS. And I go, what? <laughs> I swear he said that. And he goes, that guy was ISIS. I go, no, that's an Indian Sikh. I go, that's who's wearing a turban. And the guy really was freaking out. And again, that kid's growing up in a different environment than my kids. So hopefully more and more kids will be more tolerant. I mean, I don't know. On on the one hand, I'm hopeful because I go the internet and you're learning stuff. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, people go down that rabbit hole. I have adult friends now who've lost their minds. Like they are smart, critical thinkers who starts sending me conspiracy theory videos about how black lives matter is all a big thing to try and get rid of Trump and how coronavirus was part of that. And I mean, they've lost their minds. And I go, if adults can do that, maybe there's this, this, as much as I'm hopeful of our kids, there's also this other 
uh, uh, stream that's leading people into this crazy world. So I don't know. I'm really not sure what the future holds. Hey, Maz, we're just going to take a quick break to let our listeners know that. We are supported by The Bear Home. They're a Canadian company that makes all-natural soaps, detergents, and cleaners that are safe for you, your home, and the planet. And everything smells the best. It's the oh best smelling soap in the world. My favorite is the lime and it's bergamot. Bergamot. I can never say that word, but trust me. Start with that one and tell me if it's not the best soap you've ever had. You will love it. And you'll also love that the products come in glass bottles that you can refill at home with their convenient refill boxes that give you six times the product, reducing the use of single use plastics. And I can't stress enough. We approached them. They didn't come to us. We only approached the companies we truly know and love. When we find a soap we like, we like to stick with it. But they're scented with organic essential oils. They're biodegradable. And best of all, they're made in Canada. So head over to thebearhome.ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree20 at checkout for 20% off your order. And that's the bear home. Bear as in bear naked, B-A-R-E home.ca that's t-h-e the bear b-a-r-e and home h-o-m-e <laughs> dot c-a but we are also supported by bravado designs bravado designs are basically the most comfortable nursing bras or just everyday bras that you will ever wear when i was finished nursing lucy i continued to wear my bravado designs bra just because i loved living in it And I was always whistling at Alex saying, you look good. And she's like, I wear it for the comfort. It's true. But you do look good in them. Everybody does. It's insane. My mom has one too. And she looks amazing. She is so comfortable. And what's great is that, I mean, my mom's obviously not nursing a baby. So she got one from their new everyday collection, which has no clips, but the same amazing comfort and wearability that you would find in those OG nursing bras. So you can get the nursing bras at bravadodesigns.com. Or you can head to the Canadian website because they have the access to the everyday collection as well as the OG nursing bras. That is ca.bravadodesigns.com. Regardless of which website you go to, use the promo code ThisFamilyTree20 at checkout and you're going to get 20% off. Again, that is ThisFamilyTree20. But now let's get back to our interview with Maz Jabrani. I was listening to your podcast and you were talking about, and excuse me if I'm getting this wrong, but I believe you were saying that one of your parents were considering voting for Trump. Maybe it was the guest you had on. It was one of your recent podcasts. In Iranian culture, is it popular not to vote? And if they are voting, are they somehow being influenced or charmed by Trump? Is that a popular thing going on right now? Yes and yes. So first of all, I think a lot of Iranians, especially in the West, but even in Iran, I think that they are very much skeptical of voting because they see the government that's there. It's an oppressive government. We know that they've rigged elections in the past. I mean, the fact that even in Iran right now, I think in order to run, you have to be approved by a certain council and they only approve people that are you know, far, you know, supportive of the government. So a lot of people in Iran are very skeptical mm-hmm. of voting and elections. Um, and then Iranians in general, and I would, I would probably go again a little further. Anyone leaving countries that have been under dictatorships or, or, or turmoil. So mm-hmm. again, you're going to run into probably Syrians that think this way too. I think when they come to the West, they go, we don't want to be political. Let's just stay, let's just lay low don't fill out the census form. Don't let them know you're here. Just be quiet. We're here. Just shut up and be quiet, which is very contradictory to the American way of one vote, 
one voice, yeah. get out there, blah, blah, blah. So definitely there's a generation that thinks don't even get into politics. Politics is dirty. And they'll say things like if you go and say, well, you know, this politician, this, this candidate is better than this candidate. They will say things like, well, um, you know, it, they're all dirty. Why, why, do you, why do you want to get involved? They're all dirty. Why are you doing this? So let's put that on, on one side. So that basically stay away from politics in general. Then you have this weird phenomenon that happens. So a lot of Iranians, and I'm finding a lot of immigrants have this one group that are, are they love strong men. They love people that, I, I don't know if it's because they come from dictatorships or what, but they love strong men. They are, the Iranians in general that like Trump, they actually have bought into what Trump has said because Trump has said, we're not going to deal with Iranian, the Iranian regime, ex mm -hmm. unless if they're willing to, you know, do X, Y, and Z, which the Iranian regime is saying, we're not willing to do X, Y, and Z. Mm. So it's this tough talk. And they go, yeah. he's going to get rid of the mullahs. He's going to get rid of the oppressive government. And I go, look, I'm on board with you about getting rid of the oppressive government. Yeah. I just don't see how it's done without either a war, which would kill hundreds of thousands of innocent Iranians, mm -hmm. or the other way around, which was under Obama, there was the the diplomacy. I said, let's try diplomacy. Let's try and bring them into the world economy. And maybe if we open up the economy and we start getting them involved with the world economy, then they're reliant on the world economy. And then if they do do some sort of uh, human rights violations, we can say, well, if you guys continue that, then we're going to pull out the companies that have come. So mm -hmm. basically all that to say that there is a contingency of people. And I'll be honest with you, whenever I post on social media, they attack me. Like they, they've really turned against anybody who is critical of Trump. These people have lost their minds. And excuse me if I misinterpreted this, but I feel like in the same podcast, you almost implied that a lot of Iranians like to consider themselves as to be white. Is that true? Or did I misinterpret that? No, no, you interpret it right. So ethnically speaking, the word Iran comes from Aryan. Iranians come from the Caucasus Mountains. So Iranians are ethnically white. And we're from, we're, we're the original white people from the Caucasus. Right. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So ethnically, we are white. And so that's why a lot of Iranians, when they came here, they were like, I don't know what you're talking about with all this, you know, Middle Eastern crap, whatever. Yeah. We're white. So just shut up. We're part of this majority and relax. Well, that's all good and nice until a travel ban happens and they go, your cousins can't come or until something like September 11th happens and they, and they read your name and they're like, Mohammed, like get over here. So as much as they want to pretend like mm -hmm. they're part of the white majority, mm -hmm. we really aren't. I mean, we, we really fall into another category and, uh, I just don't, that's why sometimes I, I lose my mind when I go, when some people argue with me about, you know, support Trump and this and that. I go, well, what about the travel ban? Was that a good thing? And they go, well, again, they blame the Iranian government. Well, the Iranian government supports uh, terrorism. So that was to keep them from sending any terrorists here. And I go, well, they mm -hmm. hadn't sent terrorists here. And really the people being affected by the travel ban are Iranian, young Iranians who were coming to America to study and now they're oppressed by their own government and they're not getting an opportunity by our government. And you guys in Canada might have had 
a little more of an influx of Iranian students coming. And Europe has benefited as well mm. with these really smart Iranians that were coming to, the, to America to study before, and now they can't. So yes, we are ethnically white. As a matter of fact, there's a movement now in the 2020 census, and there was a movement in the 2010 census to have Iranian Americans write other and put Iranian in their category so that we can be acknowledged as a minority. Yeah. Um, but a lot of Iranians, again, don't participate and nobody even knows how many of us there are in America. So that outlook, because it is a weird phenomenon. So my grandparents were immigrants. They came from USSR, again, fleeing, you know, total terror and shit, come to Canada, start a better life. And then even though they're different, they're looked down upon by the majority of, you know, the Canadians around them, people that speak English, they are trying so hard to fit in that they look for the nearest group that they can kind of um, berate or just think is lower than them on the totem pole in their like effort to, to fit in and be recognized as Canadians in this case. So if there's that with Iranians kind of coming to the States, at least trying to, you know, maybe voting right wing, uh, identifying with Trump and his politics, which is so hard for me to imagine immigrants voting for. Um, but do you think it's an attempt to kind of manage the hostility that they've been feeling from the government? And are you still feeling any hostility from the U.S. government? Well, I think it's partially that. I think it's partially that they really want to say, look, I'm American now and mm. this is who I am and I want someone who's tough on law and order and blah, 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 blah. Well, the thing that right away in my mind, I go, where's your sympathy? Where's your empathy? Where's your, you know, you were that, you were that person. And then they differentiate themselves, right? So yeah. there's a whole discussion of, you know, you go, Trump is anti-immigrant. They go, no, Trump is anti-illegal immigrant. <laughs> and you go, all right, well, uh, a lot of the people that are coming to the border that are seeking asylum, that's legal. Or refugees that are coming here, you know, were vetted before. Yeah. It takes years of being vetted to come. And so I just saw W. Kumar Bell has uh, his show called The United Shades of America. And he did, a, he did an episode on Iranians in New York. And there's... Uh, group of Iranians that are, you know, you have, you have conservative Iranians that are Muslim, you have conservative Iranians that are secular, and then you have conservative Iranians that are Jewish. Mm -hmm. So there's a Jewish Iranian community in New York, and he gathered a group of them. And these guys were saying the same thing. They were saying, well, if these guys were coming legally, then that would be fine, but they're coming illegally. And my answer to those guys is, look, some of you might have either had the resources to come legally and get all your paperwork and then come. Mm -hmm. But I bet you, if you guys were to ask around, there's going to be a lot of people from your circles who landed on the shores and said, I am here seeking asylum because if I go back, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Yeah. And so that is still legal, but you landed illegally and then you, you, you went after legalization. Mm -hmm. So it's, it blows my mind. It blows my mind that, that people are not sympathetic to the yeah. plight of others, you know? Well, I, I like the way that you mentioned it. You said, you know, Canada and UK were benefiting from this influx of Iranian, Syrian immigrants and these great students, these really bright kids. I'm a secondary school teacher. 
so many Syrian kids in the last few years coming over here. Uh, and they're amazing students. So not only are we getting bright kids who want to work hard, who want to be, you know, great contributing members of society, we get Dolma. But um, what do you think it's going to take? Because like I can see it because I'm directly involved, but what do you think it's going to take for the general average American to see, no, immigrants are good. They have a lot to contribute and were nothing without immigration. Well, it's unfortunate because I think that people don't learn from history. So if you go back in the early 1900s, as Italians are coming, yeah. they're, you know, they're probably, they're looked down upon and persecuted. And then Irish, then the Jews, then the Japanese, then, mm-hmm. I mean, every culture has, goes through it. And it's such an easy uh, it's so obvious of a manipulation by leaders that when people don't, when people buy into it, I go, it's one thing to say, look, I live in the middle of some farm in Oklahoma and I've never met anybody from these backgrounds. So therefore I'm going to actually believe the what Trump tells me when he says, yes, there are gang members and, and terrorists looking to come and kill you. Okay. I'm going to believe it. But it's another thing to be from these backgrounds and buy into that yeah. and not sit there and go, wait a minute, I'm from this background. And, and I've, I've never met a terrorist. Uh, everyone that I've seen that's come to this country from Iran has come here to try and make a better life for themselves, as well as any Syrians that have come, et cetera, et cetera. And really the biggest threat to Americans are Americans mm-hmm. who have guns and they go out and shoot each other. Yeah. So I am, it blows my mind. And I think that there's a, psychological difference between people who think conservatively and people who think liberally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember actually on one of my podcasts, we had a, um, uh, uh, anthropologist on, and he said that there were studies that show the conservative mind, uh, functions from fear and the liberal mind functions from hope. Um, and so the conservative says, no, keep them out. They're the enemies. They're yeah. the danger. And the liberal says, no, bring them in. They're part of the community. And in all reality, we need immigrants for our our economy. I mean, we just drove north of uh, L.A. recently, and we were driving past all this uh, farmland. There's people out there picking fruits. And I told my kids, I said, you know, it was Labor Day. And I said, guys, these guys are out in this heat picking the fruit. And and so appreciate them. And we should Mm -hmm. appreciate them. And when you eat the fruit, realize somebody was out there in 100-degree heat picking it. And most, uh, you know, American-born citizens aren't out there picking stuff. It's this migrant worker that's out there picking stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know how, if, if it ever will change. I mean, it could be that, you know, as we go down, there's going to be a new enemy. I mean, I, I talked about this. It's like in 2016, they said Mexicans and Muslims are coming to get you. Yeah. In 2018, it was a caravan that was coming to get you. In 2020, it's black people who are coming to get you. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to just turn people's anger and their hopelessness to someone else and go, the reason you don't have a good life is because of that guy who looks different from you. Yeah. As opposed to sitting there and going, you know, maybe you don't have a good life because I have somehow gamed the system so that you can't have a good life. And I'm going to sit up here. And, and, and wealth income disparity is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger because I'm going to convince you that healthcare for you is a bad thing. 
You know, it's just, it's, it blows my mind. It blows my mind. And I get into discussions with a lot of my conservative friends. I just watched a great uh, um, documentary just last night. Uh, Alex Gibney has one on, um, it was on Amazon, all about income inequality and like the mentality of, of the far right with Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, yeah. Ayn Rand. And this whole thing of like, less government is better. Well, less government can be good if the people that had the money would actually reinvest it as opposed to buying boats. Yeah. But, you know, but it's easier. It's a lot harder for people that are, that don't have to, 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 to go, wait a minute. I should be, I should be holding these people accountable because when they say, I want to hold the rich accountable, then the rich turn around and they go, well, if you have the government tax us, then they're going to tax you. And then you can't be yeah. like me. And they go, oh, I can't be a billionaire if I, if I try to tax billionaires. And then, and then that billionaire goes, yeah. And more importantly, the people that are actually holding you down are the brown people who are taking your jobs. And they go, you're right. <laughs> and, then, and then they go, well, then go pick the fruit. And then they go, no, I don't want to pick the fruit. I'd rather not <laughs> no. pick the fruit. No, but that's anything about the Holocaust, anything like that. It's always started from that us versus them mentality. And I, I don't know if I should admit this, but I spend, uh, you know, once every couple of weeks, I'll go on the incel and the uh, storm front. It's like a, a white supremacist message board because I just want to I, I have such a hard time understanding it and I have such a fascination with it. And it's very much like they're crazy. They all believe that people from other countries are out to get them. And they they honest to God believe it. And I read on CNN this morning that Homeland Security just put out uh, that the greatest threat to Americans in 2021 is white supremacist extremists. It's not Antifa. It's not Black Lives Matter. It's white supremacists that were born in the States, domestic terrorism. And they can't get that. It's always somebody else. Well, it's absolutely, listen, that is such an obvious thing. I mean, you don't, I don't even, if you look at the shooters a lot of times and you look at their manifestos, they tend to be far right. Look, I talk to my friends that are on the right and I go, guys, because what they, a lot of my friends on the right are, they're very hesitant or reluctant to say, yeah, there's problems on both sides. Mm -hmm. They'll say, no, Antifa, Antifa, Antifa. And I go, okay, I go, listen, it's fine. There are, there are probably leftist radicals like the guy in portland who shot the trump guy you know when you look at his interview you realize this guy had gone off the hinges as well he's showing up at these protests with guns just looking to shoot somebody it seemed like and maybe his life was in danger maybe not but he showed up at the protest with a gun as well so There are people on the left that are that are that are going to be crazy, but there's also a lot, and maybe like you said, even more organized on the right. And yeah. and to your point, very interesting to me. There's here's one of my Iranian friends who's very conservative. He sent some, you know, some he uh, sent a, a link to a tweet from somebody. I don't even know who the person is. A lot of the stuff nowadays, what it is is somebody pointed this out. They go, the reason conspiracy theories are are um, so prevalent and doing so well nowadays used to be there was three or four news outlets. So at least we could agree on a certain set of facts and then we would debate. Now there's really 3 billion, 4 billion news outlets because each one of us is a news outlet. Yeah. So there's some Twitter page and this person's obviously very pro Trump. Now, is it a 
Russian operative. I don't know. Is it a bot? I don't know who it is, but a lot of their stuff is about Trump, Trump, Trump. So they, they posted something where there's, it seems to be, seems to be, I don't know if it is or not, seems to be a, a, a Black Lives Matter protest. And you hear chants of like, you know, whatever, like, kill the Jews, stop the police or something like that. And I go there and I'm, I'm looking at this video and I'm going, first of all, this video could have been doctored. Yeah. Because I, I don't see people's mouths. Secondly, I go, it's possible that there was a portion of this protest and some groups started saying this. And I guarantee you, whoever's around them that are the peaceful protesters were probably like, shut the hell up and get mm-hmm. out of here. I w- I've been to some of the protests and a majority of the protesters were peaceful. Not yeah. to say there's not looters. Anyway, this friend of mine who is Persian, Jewish, he posted that little thing in our little chat. And he's like, guys, this is serious. This is like Nazism is coming to America. And he was showing this video that was supposedly from a Black Lives Matter protest. And I sent him a link to the the Charlottesville protest. I go, there's clearly white supremacists Mm -hmm. marching down. You can see their lips moving and they're saying Jews will not replace us. And I go, I go, listen, maybe this video you sent is real. And if it is, that's horrible. But I go, have you seen this video? And have you seen how the far right thinks about mm-hmm. you, about Jews and about blacks and about immigrants? And somehow they're not willing to look at that. Like you just yeah. said, the biggest threat to anybody that is trying to live a normal life in America is this crazy far right mentality. And I just don't know how these guys that are supposed to be educated and possibly objective about this don't see that. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is. They blind themselves to it. Even when I say, by the way, I go, listen, if you tell me you're fiscally conservative and maybe you're anti-abortion and maybe you're anti-gay marriage, all that stuff, I go, at least you're giving me policies. And I go, okay, I get it. But I go, did you know that when you get in bed with the hatred that Trump is putting out there, you're getting in bed with all these other far right people who are, 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 it's a dog whistle. Trump's a dog whistle for them. Even the other day in, in the New York times, there was an article about in Germany, there's Germans that are looking at Trump and saying that he is our leader. Um, so it's, it's a messed up situation. Yeah. There's so many videos out there now, um, uh, that confirmation bias is obviously a huge problem. You can prove any point you have, uh, because there's, there just is such an abundance of videos, but I'd like to think, that things are actually getting better, even though there's more ways to kind of show racism on because everyone has a cell phone that they didn't have 20 years ago. Have you noticed in your career an improvement in terms of you getting more opportunities now that you wouldn't get in the past? Like maybe you've had to play a terrorist eight times or something, and now you can play the best friend or the leading man. Have you noticed those changes within your own career? There's definitely been an evolution since. Um I first started in terms of the roles and in the participation of people of color. Um, when I first started, I did a couple of terrorist parts. And as a matter of fact, I had a book I wrote. It's called I'm Not a Terrorist, but I've played one on TV. Yeah. Um, and um, it was early on, I realized I don't want to play terrorist roles. So mm-hmm. I, I stopped doing those. However, I continued to play roles that maybe had accents and maybe the guy was like a deli owner or he was a shawarma place, whatever. And my argument always was, listen, I've never met a terrorist, but I've met these people who own the shawarma stores or drive a cab or whatever. And I'm going to try and 
you know, if I can play these characters, why not? I'll play the characters and try and play them in a, in a way that they are likable or people can relate to them. Um, but I have seen in my career this shift from even like doing accents in parts, right? I, I continue to do them, um, but I really am dying to do a part that doesn't have an accent that's closer to me. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the younger generation, guys like Rami Youssef now and, and Hassan Minaj and um, the Mo Amers and all these other guys, these guys are really doing a good job of presenting themselves as just Americans who happen to be from these other backgrounds. And so that's happened and it's nice to see, you know, uh, Aziz Ansari, uh, Mindy Kaling, all these people that are presenting this other side. Mm-hmm. And, and I've tried actually in the past few years to try and um, develop TV shows that would reflect my life more. Um, I have not succeeded in getting one on TV yet. Um, but, and that's part of the motivation for me to get back to writing shorts and just producing them myself for now. Um, but I think as an industry, the, the direction is moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Just today I read that the, uh, the uh, Motion Picture Academy is has some new guidelines for films that are qualifying for best picture that are more inclusive. So all that stuff is good because I always used to sit there and I would watch some of these movies that were the best movies of the year. And I would say, well, these are great movies. Don't get me wrong, but I would say, what about the movies that were made that didn't catch people's attention just because they're from another background or from another country. Cause I know there's always going to be amazing films from different places. And so I think it's important. I think it's important to be more inclusive, you know, n- not to the point of where you're going like, well, this movie was clearly inferior to another movie, but because it has black and middle Eastern actors, we're going to give it the award. No, but I guarantee you when you allow people from these different backgrounds or encourage people from those backgrounds to make things and when people in positions of power realize, oh, there's an audience for this, that's when you start to see uh, uh, people wanting to make these things. I mean, really, ultimately, the marketplace drives it, right? Mm -hmm. So when you get crazy rich Asians, people go, what's the next Asian film? You know, when you get uh, uh, Black Panther... What's the next black film? So these things, obviously, the marketplace will uh, determine uh, the direction that we go in. But it's definitely, I think, going in the right direction. So in 30 years from now, do you think your children will be on a podcast or whatever's popular at that time talking about this? Or is there an end insight in our lifetime for these problems dealing with race? I mean, it's, it, no, it never, I don't think it'll ever change. As much as I was, I was, I was hopeful that the internet would lead us in the right direction. Cause I said, <laughs> it's at the tip of your finger, you know, it's at your fingertips, right? You can learn about other people. So if I'm really worried about, you know, it's funny to me cause, cause you have these politicians that really do try and um, incite people with fear. So you have a guy like Michael Flynn, there's a video of Michael Flynn, who was the national security advisor who then ended up, you know, being ousted under Trump and, uh, you know, people that don't know about him should read about him a little bit, but he was first, he was uh, um, convicted of, of talking to the Russians and uh, Trump is trying to uh, uh, um, get his conviction overturned, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Um, There's videos of him somewhere in Florida, I think talking to some council 
you know, it was like a city council or something. And so he's saying things like, you know, um, there's Muslims in this community and Sharia law is coming and blah, blah, blah. So there's people who really believe that there is this, you know, Sharia law. There's these Muslims that are trying to take over America and instill, install Sharia mm. law. Well, I mean, the, the chances of something like that happening are, are, are crazy, mm-hmm. but people believe that. Um, and so I always would say, you know, these people who are standing at podiums and saying Muslims want to kill you and they're yelling death to America and blah, blah, blah. I go, listen, dude, I'm sure if you go to somewhere in the Middle East and you go, there's, there's going to be radicalized people yeah. in every country, just like we have. And you're going to sit down with them and go, what do you think of America? And they're going to go death to America. Now, that's someone who's radicalized. But I said the general population in the Middle East and any country in the Middle East, they're just trying to make money to feed their family. And I go, it's almost, it's almost narcissistic for us to think that someone's waking up every morning going, death to America, as opposed to waking up and going like, where am I going to get the bread for the day? <laughs> um, you know, I, mean, I was like, how, how obsessed do you, think you, do you think people are with us? Where they're just constantly going around going, death to America. Yeah, there's so, a hierarchy of needs. <laughs> yeah. So I honestly thought that people would go online and when they he- hear politicians say, the Muslims and Mexicans are coming, mm-hmm. they would Google it maybe and be like, oh, actually, Muslims and Mexicans are not as concerned about us as, you know, and, and the odds of the criminal, look, criminals are here, of course, but the odds of the criminal element coming are low and blah, blah, blah. But unfortunately, that's not what ha- what's happened. When people Google that, then they go down that rabbit hole and they end up being even more afraid. Yeah. Um, so really, it's like I, I, I spent my junior year in college uh, abroad. I spent it in Italy. And I've traveled a lot with my stand-up. I've done shows all over the world. And I encourage people. I go, God, the biggest thing that could happen for people in the West is for us to travel and go to these other countries and realize that they're just regular people living their lives. Mm. Um, and I thought that's what, that's what the internet was. And unfortunately, the internet, rather than taking us showing us the world and saying it's a beautiful place. It's shown us clips from the world and said, it's a scary place. Yes. So 30 years from now, I think we will have made some progress, but I think there will be another boogeyman. And I think there will be other populists trying Mm -hmm. to scare our kids. And I just hope that our kids are critical enough thinkers to go, I'm not going to fall for this PT Barnum who's up there directing this circus and while also, you know, benefiting and embezzling and, and having that. I mean, he said he's going to clean the swamp, drain the swamp, and he's had the swampiest uh, administration ever. So it will continue, but hopefully we'll be a little more tolerant. Yeah. yeah let's go for the grandkids. And, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. That, that's on you as a parent. That's on us as parents. And I think we are trying to raise those critical, more woke kids than the generations before us. But yeah, the internet has led us only into more depravity in like every single way that I can imagine. But it has also opened us up to stand-up comedy during a pandemic, (laughs) things like that. So Maz, uh, we are going to cut our time with you here today because we could probably be on this for the entire afternoon. But where can people check you out, check out your comedy, find what you're working on? Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me on. Best of luck with the babies. Thank uh, you. I'm amazed they're still napping. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, uh, I am on, so I'm on social media a lot. So I'm trying to get my Instagram game up. So if people want to follow me at Maz Jobrani, Instagram, Twitter, you can hear me ranting and raving about my politics more. Uh, Facebook, all of the above. It's all at Maz Jobrani. I have a YouTube channel again at Maz Jobrani. And um, my Netflix special is currently running on Netflix. It's called Immigrant. So check any and all of it out. And, uh, and I'll see you hopefully. I have another special coming out soon. Fingers Exciting. crossed. So keep looking for it. Hopefully I can make you laugh. Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much. And uh, have a great afternoon. Go deal with that plumber. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Moz. What would you think? I thought your questions were amazing, first of all. Um, asking. Asking about Iranians and supporting Trump and how they view themselves and things. I didn't even consider that. I hadn't listened to Moz talk about that. So that part of the conversation had me like totally kind of floored. Oh, you're welcome. And is it Iranian or Iranian? I feel like I'm, I'm scared to say it. Iranian from I, Iran or Iran. I, I see because when, when I'm it's listening. It's definitely Iranian. When I'm listening to the podcast, I hear them say Iranian and from Iran. Iran. But then they're Iranian. Okay. Well, I, no, yeah, I, I'm you, wrong. I'm wrong. I don't. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying just admit you don't know. Yeah. No. I. I'm probably wrong. I definitely don't know. But we can Google that. I guess. Uh, let's go to our interview now with Blake Horseman, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, you probably know him from his infamous stagecoach. Look, you probably, <laughs> if you're listening, you may have slept with him. <laughs> But uh, we're going to break everything down, all the drama, all, and get all the juice. That sounds weird. Uh, oh, I think it's good. Yeah, you, Appropriate. Yeah, you called him hot in well, this episode. Well, I think episode. we cut it. We did cut it, yeah. Yeah, which was smart. But you did. No, you called him hot. I didn't call him hot in like a Blake, you're hot. He was talking about how he was the bad guy like in the house and all the other guys viewed him and somebody else as you so, know, their so biggest he's, competition. he's talking he's just talking on a sentence about why he's the bad guy and you're like is that because you're hot no she did you okay the reason is because like he is an attractive guy the other guys recognize mm-hmm. him as an attractive guy i want to know if he thought it was because he was attractive and I, I said it wrong. I know. Yeah, we did another interview recently with someone who, a man oh, who was in an adult film. And Alex was like, I just watched your movie. And it was like, like <laughs> Unchained's recommendation. I never said to say you just watched no, it. No, but you said to watch it. So I knew who we were talking to. Anyway, let's go to our interview right now with Blake Horseman. But Alex, please tell us who we're supported by. We are supported by Beluga Baby. Beluga Baby's wrap carriers allow you to hold and comfort your baby hands-free with their unique four-way stretch bamboo fabric. Studies show that baby wearing can reduce crying by 40% and you guys know I love it so much. So since you can use your Beluga wrap straight from birth, you'll be giving yourself a way calmer postpartum. I used to be anti-wrap. Something about it just rubbed me the wrong way. I thought it'd be complicated to wrap. I didn't want to wear them until we had our second child and you need the crying to stop and nothing is more effective so fellas if you're out there if you're listening to this podcast if not for your wife get it for yourself because this has really changed my life and my walks and my comfort level and my stress level well speaking of comfort too the fabric is so light and airy that you don't feel confined in any way and then the little bounce that it has to it helps with baby's gas and colic they're certified hip healthy by the International Hip Dysplasia Institute, and there's free shipping across Canada and the U.S. So go to belugababy.com 
Walmart.ca and use the promo code ThisFamilyTree10 at checkout for 10% off. Again, that's BelugaBaby.com or .ca. For 10% off with This Family Tree 10 at the checkout, but we are also supported by Miku. The Miku Smart Baby Monitor is the most accurate sleep and breathing monitor ever. It uses no contact sensor fusion technology connected to your smartphone. Military grade. It's true. To alert you of any changes to your baby's vitals or the nursery conditions. So most times when you see a monitor like this, the baby has to wear like an attachment around their foot or around their chest. But Miku just does that with this insane technology they have. It's quite incredible. And what's the best part about it is it puts your mind at ease, especially if it's your first child. Oh my God. Heck, even with our second child, we still have those same concerns about is the baby breathing yada 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 and now we have none of that because we know miku's got our backs big time and not only that but it can put your mind at ease because they use crypto security so it is unhackable the hd video and photo is amazing and the night vision is the best we've ever had on a monitor the last thing i want as a father is some hacker looking at my baby <laughs> i know that sounds funny but it's true it is true. So if you want to get involved, you can go to MikuCare.com and use the promo code FAMILYTREE20 for $79 off. $79. That's huge. So again, that is MikuCare.com and the promo code FAMILYTREE20. However, this discount is just for U.S. listeners. And now let's go to our interview with Blake Horseman. How are you guys? Oh, pretty good. How are you doing? Doing all right. I uh, have a little hangover, a little hungover today. <laughs> I was going to ask about that. <laughs> that was our first question. <laughs> to be honest, we thought he's not going to show no. up just because we saw how much fun you were having on your Instagram. And I was like, I won't count on it. I, for I also forgot today is Labor Day. Yes. I did too. When, I yeah, when we booked it, I totally <laughs> forgot too, but. I'm here. I made it. Well, we're, good, we're very impressed. Big class of coffee, big cup of coffee. Good for you. What was the event you were doing? It looked quite fun. Yeah. So um, here in Denver, we have this thing called Denver Derby and it's the biggest derby party outside of Kentucky. So it's okay. like a pretty big deal. We get like thousands, thousands of people usually. And my uncle has to be like on the board for this party. And I was supposed to DJ it this year and everything. And then NBC reached out and they were like, hey, we know about the Denver Derby. Like, we'd still love to film a watch party there in Denver and throw to you guys during the show, you know, or during the race. And so my uncle was like, yeah, I guess we'll just do it in my backyard. So like we, me and a couple like Joe came into town, Clay came into town and we just kind of had a, it was like 30 people, nothing big, you know, but just like a cool little derby party that NBC threw to. They had us like during like commercial breaks and things like that. So it was fun. It was a good time. I got to say, Blake, I was laughing because in your stories, I saw you guys all partying, like you're all close. Nobody's in masks, no social distancing. Yeah, yeah. You guys are loving on each other. <laughs> and then when the NBC cameras came in, suddenly everybody is the perfect, you know, COVID <laughs> time person. Yeah. You've all got your masks on. People are standing six feet apart. What? Yeah. What is the temperature down there? Like, how does it obviously publicly we have to act like we all need to wear our masks, but do you feel like we actually, is it intense down there? Are people scared or is it not? So yeah, that's a good question. So Denver is, we're actually decently, we've done a good job. We didn't go completely open, mm -hmm. you know, where it was like, you know, free for all. And then we had to close back down. We did a very slow open and we've been just continuing. Like I haven't, like we start selling booze at 10 o'clock, masks are required everywhere until you're sitting down at your, in your 
at your table, 50% capacity, 50 people max in mm -hmm. restaurants. So we've just done a very slow opening and we've done a good job of it here in Denver. Um, and everybody's, you know, followed the rules and everything. Now, of course, there's like, you know, like house parties and like backyard parties like that where everybody wears a mask in kind of thing. And then once you're inside, it's a little different. Um, but yeah, for the cameras, obviously NBC was like, you got to put those masks on. And we were like, okay, like no problem. You know, so, it's like one of those things. What's your vibe? Like, are you getting out a lot or are you kind of hunkering down? Uh, so I was hunkering down a ton of mm -hmm. those. Obviously, I mean, most people were, I guess, March and April, and I didn't leave at all. You know, I was like completely stuck in my house, um, which just sucks. Is like I have no dog, no girlfriend. Like I was like all alone. You know, so it was really hard mentally. Um, and then you know, I slowly we've slowly started as like Denver started to open up. Like I've slowly I've traveled maybe three twice. I guess really twice. Mm -hmm. I did um, a DJ gig because I you know D I was DJing like as a living, and that obviously shut down. So I was like mm -hmm. hurting for money a little bit, and. Um, Dallas opened up for like two weeks and I went down there and did one gig and it was all socially distanced. There was like only like they actually had cattle guards around the tables and everything. Oh, so it was a very weird vibe. Yeah. Um, and then I went to LA last weekend. Um, but that's it. So I've been, I've been pretty, you know, hunkered down. Um, we go out here in Denver to restaurants. Like I said, you wear masks mm. everywhere. And when you sit down, you can't mingle, you can't go table to table yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So. so what's a guy like you? Cause you're young, you're super sociable. So to stay in, like if I'm in, I got, my guy mm -hmm. here with me we have kids to take care of we have a lot going on but what's a guy like you do when you're home alone for two months like does raya have a video component <laughs> right. raya's the dating I, app right I mean, yeah. Yeah. that's <laughs> it should no. <laughs> no. um it's been it was hard really hard in march and april of course i think at least for me mm -hmm. i thought you know okay like i can do this it's gonna be a month max you know i can do this i'm just gonna hunker down you know and then it started getting longer and longer and longer and i, like, I still don't think it could be another year you know until like yeah. things really open up again um but that first month was really really hard i bought a peloton i would rise that ride that nice. sucker for like two hours a day just trying to stay you know mentally like because i'm a big fitness guy i love working out that's how i get I don't know. I, I just stay sane, if you will. Yeah. And so that was huge for me. Um, so I bought a Peloton. I was doing that. Um, I did a lot of like FaceTimes and Zooms with friends like me and me and Jason and Caitlin and a bunch of us. We would Zoom beer pong all the time and Clay and Chris. So we'd Zoom beer pong at night. Um, things like that. But I was losing it there for a little while. It was hard. Mm -hmm. and I, I binged every show I possibly could. I ran out of shows. And I love binging like Netflix shows. And I ran out of that. It was it was difficult. Um, I would go up to the mountains with my family. My family lives in the mountains. Oh, that's awesome. So that was a nice escape. Yeah, I would go up there and I'd hang with my mom and uh, stepdad and sister every once in a while, like three or four days here and there. So that was nice. But mm -hmm. it wasn't easy. It's not. I don't think it was easy for anybody, really. You know, no. no matter if you had somebody or not, it's a hard situation. Is sure. online dating an option for you? I had. A, I just heard of this Raya app. Are you on it? What is okay. it? <laughs> I actually have. <laughs> I've been on the damn wait list for Raya for like seven <laughs> months. And I'm really upset about it. <laughs> so Raya, if you're listening, I want on the damn app. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I, I got on it because I heard about it obviously after the show too. And you have to like apply to be on it. Mm -hmm. But like, I was like, stupid and i was like oh they'll let me on like i got a blue check mark whatever and i didn't really take the application process seriously and so i didn't really fill out all the questions and stuff and oh. i think now they're like i'm just on wait list so but i have some friends on there and you really do meet i had some friends going like dates with like some a-list celebrities i'm like what the heck like uh -huh. it's crazy it's really weird yeah. do you think it's easier if you're an a-list um like if you're a man on raya or a woman Good question um I mean, are you saying to get dates to like actually get like matches? Yeah. If you, if I wanted to get a celebrity date and let's say I'm kind of a middling celebrity, would it be mm -hmm. easier for me to, if I was a man or a woman? 
woman i think i think the middle if you the middling the word you use middling mm-hmm. celeb as a woman would get like a date with a list celebrities pretty easy right yeah yeah i think I, easier I, I should say easier <laughs> than like you know like an a-list woman like coming down like a d-list reality star like i don't think that would happen you know but the other way around maybe so so because it looks like you're having a good time and of course like we don't even need to get that much into it right now but we know your antics at places like stagecoach but are you <laughs> actually looking for something right now because like you were so close to winning and like in, an engagement on your mm-hmm. season of the bachelor so to go from that to kind of living the life you're living right now which is just having a good time are you still looking for something or are you kind of happy where you're at yeah no i am still looking for something absolutely i mean you know i i'm not i'm a firm believer in like going out and meeting people and dating and you know, that kind of thing, rather than like sitting at home and waiting for it to come to me kind of yeah. thing. Like, I guess that, that's how I look at dating. It's like, you got to go out there, you got to put yourself out there. And you now I was on, um, I was on a podcast recently and they asked like what my, I was actually a virtual appearance, but they were like, what is like your advice as far as like dating? And I guess my advice would be like, cause, and I learned this through the show. It was like, you can't have walls up. Like if you have mm. walls up, then there's no point in dating. Like you have to, and that's how you have to go into the show. Like I remember going into the show being like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Like I'm no walls. I'm going to trust everybody. I'm just going to take everything for their word. Like I'm, I'm just going to be open and vulnerable. And I think since then I've been able to do that since the show, I've been able to do that in my real life dating. Mm-hmm. Cause I think if you go into, you know, some kind of relationship with any kind of walls up or, you know, you're not vulnerable, you're not open, then I, there's like no point to it, you know, and I don't think it'll yeah. work. And so even if you get hurt, like even, and that usually happens when you're open and vulnerable with everybody. Um, at least, you know, that like, it wasn't you, you know, that caused like the split or the, you know, whatever it was that mm-hmm. why you're not dating anymore. So that's how I look at dating now. Sometimes I hear when people are dating, like you hear this term often, oh, I'm not looking, I just want to have fun. And the connotation is, I'm just going to, if I want to sleep with someone, I'm going to sleep with them. But you being through what you've been through, do you think maybe you can't go through that approach because people get attached to you? Like I've heard like people say your only crime was you're too good looking. That So it's a good point because I think it's less of, you know, I mean, I have some trust issues a little bit now and like I definitely like are a little more careful, I guess, you know, um, with who I go on dates with and that kind of thing, because not just me, but pretty much anyone coming off the show, you know, you, you, it's a little different because you don't know their intentions. And I know that's Mm -hmm. kind of cliche, if you will. And I know people say that a lot, but it's true. Like you don't know their intentions. Um, and so that's scary. Cause like, yeah, I mean, what if, I mean, I know that there was a girl that I was seeing, you know, before paradise and they almost put her on, um, I guess whose season would that have been Pete's season just because then, They would have had somebody that I was with, you know, of course. And so and like maybe she luckily she was she's a good person and she didn't use that. Like they were like, mm-hmm. you know, if you talk about Blake, we'll get you on the show, you know, mm-hmm. and she was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so they didn't have her on the show. But like if she was like a bad person, like she could have been like, yeah, I'll talk about him all you want as long as you get me on the show, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's like a scary thing, obviously. And that's something we all go through. And um, but I don't know. Dating's dating's changed, obviously, a lot for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like some weird conversations I've had to have now when I go on dates. It's like, yeah, people might take pictures of us. Like, yeah, like, you know, you might be on Reddit tomorrow. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like a weird situation I never thought I'd have to have. Do you ever consider or have you ever gone through with maybe having someone sign an NDA or some agreement? 
thought about that. And I know friends who have that. And I know a lot of athletes and really big, you know, celebrities have that, but I just don't know if I would go to get to that level. It's honestly smart. Like it is, but I just think that would be such a weird thing to ask like a woman to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people do and it protects a lot of people. I know that. And yeah, it's not as stupid. Like obviously dating's changed a lot for you. I wanted to go way back to before the bachelor, what was dating like then? What, what was your life like then? What did you do? How many Instagram followers did you have? How popular were you with the ladies? <laughs> A lot of questions, but I need the answers. Yeah. No, yeah, no. That's always, yeah. So I had, yeah, I had 400 Instagram followers and I had like seven posts before the show. I was very much not into social media and I didn't really understand it. And I thought taking pictures was dumb. And now look at me now, you know, I'm like that person I hated, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, dating, you know, before I had pretty much in my, like before the show, I had, if you count like high school, you know, like four major relationships, like real relationships. Um, and, you know, one I lived with, her, we were together for two years. Together, had a place together in Nebraska, dog, the whole nine. Uh, and then I had a relationship right before, not right before the show, about nine months before the show that was very serious. And mm-hmm. I thought was the one I thought it was going to, you know, be the end all be all. Um, so dating, you know, I, I definitely was a relationship guy before the show. Um, yeah. And I mean, I would go out, I think, I, so going back kind of what you asked too about like, are you looking like I, I'm, I feel like if sometimes if you're not looking, sometimes it'll come, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I would never say I'm not looking because I am like if I meet a girl and I'm like, oh my God, there's some serious potential here. Like I'll go continue to go on dates and stuff like I'm not like right away. Like we're just having fun. That's all this is. Don't yeah. fall in love with me. Blah, 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 that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, and then I was I was selling beer before the show. I was a beer rep here in Denver for Coors. Um, fun job. Uh, you know, I didn't love it. I felt like I was kind of treading water. I didn't hate mm-hmm. the job. I didn't love it. And that's why mm-hmm. I kind of took the opportunity to go on the show um so yeah i mean i was just it was the right timing weirdly enough it was a very good timing for me i just kind of had my heart broken but i was also ready to go back out there my job was you know flexible and i could do that so it was it was really good timing for me as far as the bachelorette and what did the casting look like i hear sometimes people their mom or their sister submits for them and then they get a call from a producer one day what what did your uh, casting process look like that's actually exactly what it was uh my mom and sister nominated me online uh, and then i got a call you know, like four or five days later and it was a six month. So I was actually one of the early ones. I've heard stories of people like, you know, they get a call like five days later, they're on the show. Mine was a six month process. So I was like really long in the process. I was a really early call, I guess, mm-hmm. for the casting. Um, I did, you know, the questionnaires are crazy. There's like 300 page questionnaires you have to fill out. They want like your landlord and your RA in college, like all this stuff. And then uh, they have you know, I flew out to LA twice. Um, the second weekend was the crazy weekend where everybody get like, you know, you get blood tests, psych tests, STD tests, all those tests. And then they sit there with like 40 producers and they fire questions at you and they see how you are on your toes and how you do with pressure and then, you know, stress and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, yeah. And then I got, I was also, also unique because I got a phone call. So you really don't know you're on the show until like right before, you mm-hmm. know, like literally when you're like in the limo, that's when you're like, okay, I'm on the show because I can kick people out at whenever. But I was unique because I was on the After the Final Rose where I brought the horse in for Becca um, when when she was with Ari on After the Final Rose. I like brought the horse in with one of the five guys that met, met her. So I was, that was really terrifying. It was national television. I'd never <laughs> been on TV. Um, but then night one was easier for me because I had met Becca. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So night one at the mansion, I had less nerves probably compared to some of the other guys. So I was, I was, I had a unique situation kind of throughout everything. But yeah. do you know you're going to like, do they show you a picture of, Hey, here's who you're going to fall in love with. <laughs> no. Yeah. There's like a, just a picture of a couple girls. Like which one you want to follow? No. Um, I, so when I, I flew, they flew me out for the, after the final rose mm-hmm. and I was, it was a, so I think that final was on a Tuesday. So Monday night I was sitting in the, in my hotel room. It was like three or four producers with me, you know, and, 
I, at this point, I kind of knew it was going to be Becca because I knew her story and she'd been done by Ari. So I kind of knew. Uh, but I remember, um, you know, they were talking and they were like, what do you think you can do? I was like, well, my last name's Horseman. Like, it'd be fun to play off a horse. And I was like, it'd be cool to be like, if you fall off the horse, you got to get back up again. Because in my head, I knew it was going to be Becca, you know. Uh, but they wouldn't tell me until the m- Tuesday, the morning of everything. They were like, yeah, it's Becca. And I was like, I figured. And then they were like, by the way, we got you a real horse. So <laughs> good luck. You know, it's one of those things. Um, but I'll admit early on for me in the process. Um, and like I said, everybody has a, like their own story throughout the, the you know, their, their experience on the bachelor, like Jason, for example, he didn't fall for her till later because mm-hmm. he had a super late date. He didn't really catch a lot of feelings for her till late where I had the first date and I knew pretty early on. I was like, like, honestly, I was like, shit, like, I'm going to like fall for this girl. Like, this is going to be incredibly difficult mm-hmm. for me. Like I knew it pretty early on. So it was a very hard. And that's why at the end I started to lose my mind because I had been, you know, lo- slowly losing my mind for two months where like some of those guys who have later, you know, feelings they don't lose their mind as long and so by the end i was i was it was really hard it was a hard process for me so do you think had you met becca in real life do you think that you guys or that you would fall in love with her or do you think that it was like the competitive nature of the show combined with the fact that she's the only woman that you're seeing for months on end yeah i mean obviously we'll never know i guess but i remember there was a moment when we were in the the Bahamas. And I think I even talked about this. I don't think I aired it, but there was a moment we were in the Bahamas and we were like dancing to the Baja men in the Bahamas, you know, in the sand and stuff. And I remember thinking, I remember like watching her dance in the sand and everything. I remember thinking like, okay, like if I saw her like this at a bar, I would totally be into her and I would mm-hmm. totally go up to her. And that was like a good, cause you're obviously worried about that too. Of like course, as a contestant, yeah. like I'm like, shoot, do I only like this girl because that guy likes her and the producers <laughs> are telling me to, you know? So that was almost like a click for me where I was like, Oh, I am into this girl. You know, like I would be into her not on camera, not in the Bahamas. Like I would be on her just at a bar seeing her dance. So that was like a moment for me where I think, yes, obviously we'll never know, but I think, yeah, it, I would still very much be into Becca, like in real life had we met. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And were you uh, friendly with Garrett or did you just hate that guy? No, actually Garrett was probably my closest friend in the house. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. I think early on every, like you can talk to other guys in my season. Everybody kind of knew it was going to be me and him at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know kind of which, you know, which way it was going to go. But so it was a weird thing where we were kind of not ostracized. Like people obviously still like talk to us, made friends with us. But it was like just weird, like understanding. It was like, OK, you know, like Garrett are going to be there at the end. Um, so that kind of brought me and Garrett closer together. You know, especially in Vegas, we had moments where we, we and Garrett were we were just we'd set up and laugh. We had like we went to they gave us one free day in Vegas and we went to like Cirque du Soleil and then they gave us like a cool limo and we drove the strip and everything. And me and Garrett ended up being like just drinking like me and him at the end of the night, like chatting up and stuff. So weirdly enough, it was like me and Garrett. And then, of course, Jason Colton, who I'm close with. But um, but yeah, so. Yeah, so it's kind of strange. now that Becca and Garrett, like I think she just called off the engagement September 1st, really recently. It's the fourth today or the sixth today. Uh, how do you feel about that? Are you like, oh, good thing I didn't get into that because she might have called it off? No, not at all. I mean, I feel really horrible for the both of them. I mean, they truly were very much in love and I don't care what happened or what went down two years of an engagement. I can't yeah. imagine breaking that off. And I mean, I've I'm, I kind of had a public breakup, I guess, but I can't imagine like having as public a breakup as they have had and how difficult that must be, you know, mentally and just, just in general, everything like is just, yeah, it's be horrible. So I fear for them both. And no matter what happened, like, and no, I don't definitely don't look back and be like, see Becca, you fucked up. Like, it's not like that at all. You know, it's not like that at all. Like they were very much in love and very happy for very long. And honestly, I think 
I think two-year engagement is kind of successful in Nation. Yeah, you know, of course, like it's a bummer they didn't get married, but I would almost consider that a success, to be honest. Yeah. Now, how often do you wait to text Becca out of respect for Garrett? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not like that. Me and Becca are just friends, okay. and uh, me and Garrett are friends, and so it's. Uh, I think I met a. I I think I saw Becca last at Bachelor Live on stage here in Denver. I, Becca and Garrett were both here, and we all mm-hmm. hung out. And Garrett came and had drinks with me after. So like, there's no, there's no no ill feelings or anything weird like that. Like everybody's very mature. And I think that says a lot about our season, you know, and the yeah. guys on Becca's season. Because, like, you look at some of the new seasons, it seems like everybody's so damn petty. And they, like, throw little shots at the lead, you know, on Instagram and mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm like, like, I just find that immature. I think, like, you know, mature contestants don't get mad at the lead. Like, they understand oh, yeah. the situation mm-hmm. and what the process is. You know, you can't get mad at the lead for that. So. so, talking about being petty, like, Bachelor in Paradise is generally Oh, I wanted to stick on The Bachelor first. You want to stick? Okay, I just okay, have one go, more go. question. Go for it. We'll get to Paradise, yeah, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to Paradise. <laughs> but I wanted to just ask, so, when you come in second place, is there a great feeling by you? Mm. Like, okay, I'm sad about Becca. But once you get over that, is the silver lining... Hey, it seems like I'm going to be the bachelor. Uh, yeah, obviously I was super heartbroken right after and just confused and angry. Like I was mm-hmm. angry there for a bit because I was just like, you know, cause it's such a weird process because like she can't tell you the truth. Basically, she has to lie to you up until the very end, you know, so that's a hard thing to do. And a lot of people don't know this, but after the Maldives, I actually went to London for five days. They took me to London for five days and like, I like got to like mend, you know, like mend my broken heart, um, which was, it was hard, but it was cool. I've never been to London. We like went, we got that ABC credit card and we were like pub hopping and we went to like Hamilton live and oh, Book of Mormon That's live, you know, so they were like, yeah, it's pretty great. But I was also super sad and confused. And I remember like, yeah, it was, it was hard. And I got home, coming home was really hard. Mm-hmm. Everybody, first of all, wants to know, like everybody knew we were, I was F2 or, you know, one of the final two. Mm-hmm. So I got the amount of text messages and just like everybody wanted all my friends wanted to know and like everybody, you know, I'm telling my family what happened because they were like, I left hometowns and they were like, holy shit, like this yeah. is it. Like, I think he's going to come back engaged, you know. Um, so that was really hard. But yeah, once you you do, it's just like any other broken heart. Like eventually, you know, you move on and you, you get better. And as hard as it is, because like you can't go out, like I couldn't go out and like date a girl. Not that I wanted to at that point, but like I couldn't go out even with friends because even if I was like, I was photographed with my sister one time. They're like, Blake's out on date. He must not be, you know, and it's like, gosh, so it was hard. I was, it was honestly felt like quarantine. I like kind of hunkered down. Um, but yeah, after a while, you know, you heal. Um, and I think after the final rose with Becca um, was kind of where I really shut the door. Like I had obviously gotten better, but it was a weird, like you, you would kind of hold on to hope. But mm-hmm. actually it wasn't even when I talked to Becca. It was when I saw Becca and Garrett together on that and how happy they were on the couch and like how happy they just seemed giddy. And I was like, okay, like they're happy together. I'm moving on, like I'm closing that door. I'm moving on. Um, and then, yeah, of course, like you start hearing rumblings, you start hearing the whisperings, even the producers whisper in your ear. And they, they was actually, the, I was the very first person they flew out. I, they flew me out. I think they flew me out before, after the final rose for a bachelor interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so even before the season's finished airing, they flew me out. Um, and so, yeah, of course, like it's, it'd be a cool feeling. And like, it was cool. It was a cool, like you think about it. You don't want to like think about it too much and get your hopes mm. up. You know, it's one of those things. Um, but yeah, of course, like I was like, you know, this, maybe this is all happened for a reason. Yeah. Right? I'm going to go on and be the bachelor, find my person. Um, but then also at the same time, we kind of knew me and Jay, like I thought it was going to be either me or Jason for a long time right. until about a month before. And then I was like, oh, it's going to be cool. It's like, it's going to be the virgin storyline. It's going to be Colton. There's nothing we can do. Like, mm-hmm. I remember me and Jason were talking and Jason was like, dude, so be honest here. So me and Jason were both 31. We were 30 at the time. And you weren't a virgin, obviously. 
Yeah, exactly. And we were like, would you give up all the sex you've had over the last 20 years to be the bachelor? And I was like, nah, (laughs) you know, so it was like, yeah, you know, go and Colton, you know, he, he, he made a good bachelor and I knew we knew that he was going to be it. And we were happy for him. Like there was no Mm -hmm. hard feelings there either. Yeah. I guess hopping that fence was kind of worth it. That was, that was very funny. (laughs) Wild. Yeah. I saw him right after he got home from, we had dinner, like the night he got back from the bachelor and he just looked disheveled like yeah. he i was like this guy has been through the ringer you know i could just wow. see it in his eyes but he, he obviously didn't tell me anything um and then sling started slowly leak but i could just tell i was like oh my god this is gonna be a crazy season yeah because it's a five million dollar fine if you do break the the secret right mm-hmm. yeah and i don't know like what that consists of telling me or if it means like telling e-news like mm-hmm. i don't know you know what that all consists of because those i don't those go over my head the contracts go over mm-hmm. my head blake we're just going to take a quick break to let our listeners know that we are supported by HeyU. HeyU super serves reality fans by delivering thousands of hours of reality content curated in one place. They've got over 8,000 episodes from over 300 reality shows, all your favorites like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, Real Housewives, and our personal favorite, Vanderpump Rules. So if you're listening to this interview, there's a good chance you are already a reality show fan. And if you're not, you're going to be. And if you don't have HeyU, I think you are making a huge mistake because this will provide you with hours of enjoyment when shane says hours he means hours because they have complete series and they let you catch up from the beginning so you can basically binge from the beginning of any show you want it's fast most episodes are available the same day as they're on tv it's ad free and all the content is available for download on any of your devices so you can watch it on the go and it's cheap yeah it's less than a fancy smoothie at 5.99 a month tax included and no contract so if you want to get started you can set up a real stress-free month-long trial for free by visiting get.heyu.com slash the family that's get.heyu.com slash the family and now back to our interview with blake horseman see i'm curious about the broken heart party in london so do they only do that for the runner-up or do like final four get something like that um, so usually, so something like that, I think was super unique because mm-hmm. I, so when I got dumped that night in the Maldives, I was like, get me off this island. I don't want, cause it was just, we were on this tiny island. I was like, right. I know Beck and Garrett over there. Happy as can be. I was like, get me off this island, take me anywhere else. And so they booked a flight to London. Otherwise, like if you're in, you know, somewhere else, like, um, I remember talking to Chase McNary and he got dumped as F3. And he stayed in Thailand for 10 days. Ugh. He stayed in mm-hmm. Thailand. Yeah. So I think that was, you know, because they get their happy couple weekends yeah. afterward, right after they get engaged. And they just didn't want me to come home because people would see me and then they'd know that mm-hmm. I wasn't, mm-hmm. you know. So I think it's very, very, you know, um, popular for the F2 that happened to like that. But I don't think if it's like flying somewhere, you're just staying there. But I was on a damn island. And I was like, I need to get off this island. Mm-hmm. Like, Book of Mormon's a good way to get over a broken heart. Like, it, that's it, the it funniest thing Hamilton. I've ever seen. No, he saw both. Oh, he did. Okay. But Book of yeah. Mormon is like the best show I've seen in my it was life. Phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal. It was phenomenal. I laughed. I haven't laughed so hard. It was so great. We were like, like fifth row, right in the center, you know, like great seats. And I was like, yeah, I was like, oh, this ain't so bad. You know, I was like, I'll be, I'll be it's, okay. it's almost worth it. So, yeah. Getting on to Paradise then, um, I actually, like, I liked your approach. I understood it. I got it. Like, before Paradise happened, you were out living your life, doing what a single person does. Man, woman, I don't care. Like, if you're single, you're young, you're whatever, you're at a great party. Who cares if you, whatever, if you sleep with a bunch of people all on different nights, who cares? As long as you're being respectful, honest. And... 
on Paradise, your approach was very much like, hey, I'm here to, I'm going to check out options. I'm going to go on dates with people. I'm going to make connections. I liked it. And then you, you were, you were so villainize and again you like you didn't always make the right decisions but i want to ask about that because did you did you feel like nothing would come by you in the ass like did you feel like you were going to be okay because you were just doing what anybody would do um to a degree yeah i mean yeah it's a weird thing because like i uh when i was like we're not we're not guinea pigs you know in real life like we still have to live our life and like you know people get mad they're like why did you talk to people from bachelor nation like people from bachelor nation talk like we we go to events together we go to appearances together we see each other on podcasts like we talk we're not guinea pigs like you can't control our lives outside of that Mm -hmm. beach or outside of the show so that was frustrating because i know a lot of the producers i think took it out on me they were mad at me and they wanted to villainize me you know because they were like blake tried to like cheat the system or blake tried to like create a storyline before paradise and i was that was frustrating to me because i was like listen like of all people the producers understand that like they most of the time especially for paradise actually i shouldn't say most of the time only for paradise like bachelorette i don't think it's like this or bachelor but like they know a narrative that they want for each person on paradise like they do now there are some surprises here or there but for the most part they know who they think or who they know who they're going to push to be together mm-hmm. so it was like just it was so hip, you know hypocritical to me i was like guys like it's not like I was out there being like, okay, we're going to go down to paradise. We're going to hook up. Like it wasn't like that at all. Um, and I will admit that like there, I made mistakes. Like I should have just been smarter. Like I just should have been mm-hmm. smarter. And that was, that was on me, but going into paradise, everything was so okay with the girls. Like Kaylin, it was, there was like nothing like Kaylin was, I called Kaylin like a week before the show to check in on her yeah. because she was having a panic attack that people knew. So like I called to check in on her and be like, are you okay? Like, you know, if we, we won't have to talk about it on the beach if you don't want to, like, I, you know, so when I got down there, I was by far blindsided by Kaylin. Like just, I mean, you saw it in my yeah. facial expressions and my like reactions when she was talking to me, I was just completely in awe and shock of like, what is happening? We just talked, you were fine. Like you told me not to make it a big deal down here. So that was really hard. Um, and then Christina, Christina. So when what you saw on the show was so bizarre and like chopped up and edited, like, cause even, I'll admit, even while I was having the conversation with Christina, it was weird because she wasn't mad at me. She wasn't mad at me. Um, she was like angry. Not that I was with the girl, you know, a night before she was angry because I was with Caitlin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they just didn't get along. I don't know if they still do or not. Um, so it wasn't even like it wasn't that I was with somebody. She had no, she didn't care at all that I was with somebody the night before. She just cared that it was Kaylin. And I know very much so the producers manipulated the both of them, Christina and Kaylin, of course. But Christina, especially, I think if Chris, like, I think the producers, like, you need it, you know, you had that storyline in Paradise mm-hmm. last time where like Dean, like, you know, like ran over you and you didn't look strong. You need to look strong. You need to be strong willed. You need to look like a strong woman. And so she came firing. But like, our conversation was like, I was like, she wasn't even angry at me. And so they tried to chop it up to make it seem like she was angry at me, mm-hmm. but really she was just asking questions. She was like, mm-hmm. and she just was like, you know, and I told her she knew everything before paradise. I told her everything before paradise. So that was a really weird conversation. And me and, you know, me and Christina, like we're still friends and everything. And like, she, they didn't show it a ton, but she had my back a lot while we were on that beach. Cause she all of a sudden saw what was happening yeah, and was like, Oh my God. Like not only what is she like, she was like, what have I done? Cause she, you know, she, but she was like, like they're they're like trying to fucking you know ruin your life like you know and it was one of those moments um and i had a lot of people down on that beach that were like i don't know it was like hard you know a lot of people saw what was happening and yeah but it's a weird mentality down there it's like bully or be bullied down there you know if you see somebody getting the villain in it you 
you know, kick them while they're down because otherwise that can turn on you and you don't want to be the villain. So it's like if somebody else is the villain, you want to keep them the villain. So it's a hard environment. It's, it's an incredibly difficult environment. Down there. I wanted to ask you something and I've always like since this happened, this has been going on in my mind since I saw the episode where uh, you had to kind of right after an episode air, you cleared your name by revealing texts mm-hmm. from Kaylin. And I just thought people had such intense feelings about it. And it seemed like a lot of people took Kaylin's side. But what is the difference between outing someone on a national television show that's kind of edited to make you look bad and you publicly revealing text? Isn't it the exact same thing? I mean, yeah, I would I would completely agree. I, if anything, I think maybe the national tele- more people saw her on national television than saw my text messages, mm-hmm. you know, so if anything, like and, you know, I think publicly a lot of people took were just like. Not necessarily on Kaylin. Like, I, I don't think if anybody was like definitely team Kaylin or definitely team Blake, I think it was a lot of like, wow, this situation sucks. Like, because I hear a lot of people be like, Blake, you shouldn't release text messages. And then I was like, but you think it's okay that Kaylin lied? And they're like, well, no, Kaylin shouldn't have lied. I was like, mm-hmm. well, you wouldn't know she lied unless I released those text messages. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's completely you're contradicting yourself. So, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are just like, that whole situation sucks. And, um, it was hard. It was a very hard decision. You know, I stand by it and I don't regret it. And, you know, I never apologize for like defending myself, you know, it's something I had to do. I mean, you know, like I was beyond being villainized. Like I was like, I was like a sexual predator, predator who yeah. like silences women basically mm-hmm. was my edit, you know? And so I mean, the show just went too far. Like, and I, yeah, they just went too far. Like if it was just the sex part, whatever, I don't care. You know, like if people want to think I'm like some fuck boy or like they want to slut shame me, whatever. I don't care mm-hmm. about that. But when they decided, you know, the silencing part and that I'm a monster and I treat women like shit, like those were actually like people sometimes forget the things that were coming out of Caitlin's mouth and other people's mouths on that beach. And it was that I was a monster. And I, I think she said something like, like I treat women like garbage, I think was the word. Mm-hmm. And then I like silence, you know, women. And it was like. You know, it was just like too much. And I was like, nope, I can't do this. Like, I have to like, none of that's true. Like, I have to defend myself. So, so I, I have a couple of questions about this. The first one is that so we spoke to Wells last week and uh, we were talking just about the show in general. And he said that, you know, there's no such thing as a bad edit. What it is, it just uh they make you take a harder look at yourself and make you come to terms with, you know, certain things about your personality you might not like. Do you agree with that or disagree? Because No, I think that's the most <laughs> ignorant thing. Nick Vial says the same thing. I think it's the dumbest thing ever. And they say that because they've, they're, Wells is good, good edit. Like, mm-hmm. Wells is good, good edit. No, my edit was complete. That was a bad edit. And especially because everything that people were mad at me about didn't happen on the beach. It happened in real life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I hate that because I think Nick, you know, said the same thing one time. He was like, you know, the show shouldn't, you can't get a bad edit on the show and the show shouldn't take culpability for people's mental health right. because it's the trolls. And, and I'm just like, no, you know, and Wells also said at one point, I remember him saying, I like Wells. Don't get me wrong. He's mm-hmm. apologized for a lot of things like that he said about me. Um, but like, I think he said some of the point of like, he, he should just let it blow over. Like we live in a cancel culture right yeah. now. Yeah. I was canceled the second Caitlin got on that beach. And I was like, even if you mess up yesterday, 10 days from now, a month, 10 years, if people want to cancel you, they're going to cancel you. And I'm like, I'm not going to let it be out there that I silence women. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to do it. And yeah, I got a bad edit. Like they edited words in my mouth. They took words I said about Hannah and made it. So I said about Tasha. They edited me going to the bathroom where I was just running to the bathroom. They edited so it looked like I was running away from Kaylin when she came down to the beach and I didn't. I went up and hugged her. Yes, you can get a bad edit on the show and I'm not the first person to get a bad edit on the show. I'm definitely not. And I won't mm-hmm. be the last. Like other people get bad edits. Mm-hmm. I mean, the show just apologized to Olivia because of their edit. Like the first time the show's ever done that. They oh, literally wow. apologized to Olivia for her edit. You know, What happened with Olivia? 
Olivia Curity. I can't say her last name. She was on Ben's season. She was like, yeah, she got a really bad edit, and they actually okay. like apologized to her. Oh wow! Jeez. So on national television, that goat episode. Yeah. Um, I've read you in interviews talking about like actual PSTD that you had from the show, and just the producers having this shitty relationship with you. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but they would call you ugly and they called you a turd that won't flush is that true that sounds like something it sounds like something a 10 year old would say yeah so the producers didn't say that the people on the beach did the contestants on the beach said that but like don't get me wrong like the producers were like wanted that you know they were like you know like like i remember there was a point at one point when people were pissed they're like dude all they care like all they're asking about in my itms is you they won't shut up. Like all they care about is me talking shit about you. I like they're like I'm sick of it. Like this is boring. Like I'm over it. And I'm like I'm sorry. Like it's that's not my fault. Like mm-hmm. they, you know. Um, so yeah, I think I, that I remember that tweet. I was like, because they did an anti-bullying segment, and I was like, geez, I got bullied for an entire season, and now you guys want to like be anti-bully. So yeah, that was frustrating for me. Um, but those were lines that people said down on the beach, you know. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't think like. I don't know if I necessarily have a terrible relationship with the producers. I mean, I'm not the first person to call the producers out. Mm-hmm. Not going to be the last. Um, I, honestly, like Dean's probably talked shit more about the show than anybody. And he's been on the show like five times. Yeah. Um, Rachel also, you know, talks a lot of shit about the show. Like, so I'm not the first person. And I think they understand that. And there's still a lot of producers that I, you know, and I still have a relationship with. In fact, I was just talking to one last night on FaceTime. Like you, you still have a relationship with them. I think you just have to understand you get to the point where it's like not these people aren't bad mm-hmm. all some of them are but like most of them aren't bad people they have a job to do now their job can suck at times I know a lot of them lose sleep and I've, I've seen pe- them cry over what they have to do to us and what they you know what they see um, but you know they have a job and yeah sometimes they hate their job and other times they love it just like everybody else but and they have a show to create mm-hmm. and it's not an easy thing to do to have you know, 20 years or however long the show's been on the air, like you have to switch it up. You have to change it up. And I think that, you know, it was an unfortunate season. Um, I think honestly, my bachelor's bachelor, I don't know if anybody got a good edit on my season of paradise. I think maybe Dylan. Um, but you know, like a lot of the girls look like mean girls and like, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a rough season. There was a fist fight. Like it was just a lot going on that season. So when you're there, are you like, you must be thinking like, I'm going to be looked at as Harvey Weinstein. All of a sudden their people are going to equate it. And was the fallout as bad as you thought it would be as you, the theater of the mind that you were imagining while you were on the beach? So when I was on the beach, I di- actually did. I mean, I knew it was going to be like bad, but I didn't think it was going to be that bad because I didn't know Kaylin was saying those things. She wasn't saying it to me. She was saying it to the camera or to other people on the beach. So no, I did not know it was going to be as bad. But then once I got home and I started to talk to people like Demi would call me, Tasha would call me you know, Christina, and they, they started to tell me some of the things that Kaylin was saying to her. That's when I was like, wait, what? You know, and I was mm-hmm. like freaking out. I called them producers. And I'm like, is this like, if this is true, this is lie, blah, 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 like all that kind of stuff. Um, but they all, everybody I talked to and they all were like, it's not going to be as bad as you think. It's right. not going to be as bad as you think. Like it never is, blah, blah, blah. And I, but I knew in my gut, like I knew I was like, no, it's going to be really bad, really bad. And it was worse than I could have imagined. Mm-hmm. When I first saw those first two episodes before they aired, like I, I got them like the Saturday before the Monday, Tuesday airing. And I watched it. And one of the producers, my producer who was down there on the beach with me called me and I could tell in her voice, she was even like, it's going to be really hard, man. Like it's going to be really difficult these first few episodes. And then I watched the episodes and I was, that's when I just was like, Nope, mm-hmm. I don't care. I'm going to do what I have to. Like, it was like, and especially like in this era that we live in now, not only cancel culture, but like, you know, this was, you know, the, the me too era where, you know, like 
that was all taking very, very seriously. And that's why I can't believe the show had the balls to say that I silenced, you know, Kaylin and like mm-hmm. they had the, they not only say it once, but it was like four times they re-aired it. They kept repeating it. And so, yeah, I just couldn't believe that they did that to me. You know, I just couldn't. Do you, it. do you regret going on because of that? Uh, yeah, I get asked that a lot. And it's a hard question for me because I don't know. I think I'm a stronger person for it. And I've discovered therapy and, you know, I'm very passionate about mental health now. Um, so I think at the end of the day, like, I'm glad I went because I wouldn't know any of those things. And I wouldn't like people from the show. Now they get off the show and they call me if they had a bad time, they'll call me. Like they'll find a way they'll DM me and they'll be like, man, I need to talk. Like, how do you deal with the hate, you know, and how do you, so like, it's cool that I've become that outlet for a lot of people. Like I talked to a lot of the girls on beat season that were like, like, I'm getting destroyed. Like, how did you get through this? Like, I, I don't want to get out of bed, you know, and like, it's making me emotional because I've been there. And so like listening to other people go through that from the show, like, I'm, I'm glad I'm able to be there now for them where I wouldn't have been able to do that before because I had gotten a good at it, you know? So I, yeah, I guess I was just frustrated that the show not only put it on there once, but like multiple times I science women and everything, you know, and it was, yeah, when I got home, like, I could just feel like, yeah, it was bad. Like on social media, like I was mm-hmm. getting, I mean, I got death threats. My family got death threats. My grandma got a death threat. It was like, well, how could you raise somebody like that to silence women, to disrespects women, you know? And it was like, like it was just sex. And it was, like, it was every, like people ask me like, did you make it very clear to them that it was just sex? I was like, no, they made it clear to me that it yeah. was just sex. Like, yeah. you know? <laughs> so it was like super, it was incredibly frustrating. And I was angry at the show and I still have some angry, but I don't regret it. I think that's where we were. I don't, mm. I don't regret it necessarily because I'm able to help a lot of people now. People right. reach out to me and I'm passionate about mental health and therapy. And um, I have a great therapist now that I never would have found. And so I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad I can be that outlet for a lot of people when it comes to like them getting a bad edit or them getting hate and how they deal with it. Um, so I don't know if I could go, you know, Kevin asked me one time, he's like, if you could go all the way back to the beginning of the bachelorette to where you are now, like, would you do it all again? And I would like, there's a yeah. lot of cons. Um, but there's still more pros than cons. Mm-hmm. So talking about mental health, like, did you suffer from mental health issues like depression, anxiety, anything like that after the show? Yeah, oh God, yeah. After Paradise, um, I was in a, such a horrible, horrible place. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was always one of those person, you know, people, and I kind of grew up like this. It was just like, you know, rub dirt on it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, you're sad, like, you know, grow up, that kind of thing. And then I actually did having, you know, like my first anxiety panic attack. And I did have like the night I released those text messages, you know, I was breathing into a paper bag. Like I was, mm-hmm. I was had an, I had a panic attack, you know, I was yelling for my mom to like call an ambulance and it was bad. And then, um, yeah, I didn't get out of bed for like close to two months. You know, I gained like 20 pounds. I just couldn't physically get out of bed. Like I, mm-hmm. every morning, every night I'd be like, okay, tomorrow gonna get up I'm gonna go work out because like I was like I'm gonna go work out I'm gonna go walk around the block you know and I couldn't do it I wake up and I just would order pizza and lay in bed I just couldn't do it so that was the first like now I know what depression like depression is real like when people say like you know like I have depression I'm like like I get it now I have so much more empathy for those people because I it's I it was felt like I just couldn't like I didn't work like I just couldn't move and so it's, it's pretty wild that that's like people go through that and like people have like chronic anxiety and stuff. I cannot imagine how they get through their day. Like there's some of the toughest people in the world. Oh yeah. It's like, I don't know how they get through their day and how they can go to work the way, you know, feeling the way I did. It's, it's crazy. Now, when we were talking to Wells and obviously Wells said this in a bit of jest, he's kind of a jokester, but he's also tries to give real commentary kind of Wells was saying, it feels like you are on a public apology tour now. Does that, does it feel like that for you having to like talk about this all the time or not? I mean, 
no, because I don't find myself apologizing. So I don't know why it's apology to like, I have nothing to apologize for. You know, like, I don't like, I'm not apologizing for the text messages. I'm not like regretting that. Like I, I, I had to do it and I stand by it. Um, so no, I don't think I'm on apology tour and I don't think I'm even on a tour while in quarantine. So I don't know what that means. Um, and yeah, Jabels is a jokester, but I don't know. It's, it, it's frustrating because Wells is a producer. Like he's a yeah. producer. You know, he's on. He's on the payroll. Um, so I, it's it's hard to like. He has a job to do too. You know, and he has to kind of kiss the ass of the show. So it's like a whole. It's a whole thing. And I know a lot of people like. Yeah, feel. I mean, I don't know. Like it, it does get hard. Obviously, you know, I get asked the same thing. And then even if I get asked about it and I talk about it, people are like, like in the, let's say like a clickbait headline comes out. It's like you know. Then it's like oh my god Blake shut up about it you know and it's like listen I've done like three podcasts about it you know so it's it's hard it's frustrating but it is what it is so does this make you want to like obviously you've embraced stagecoach I mean it's in your Instagram headline you almost have to make the joke so other people just can yeah exactly the fuck up about it can Mm -hmm. you show your face at stagecoach would you ever go near it again Oh, absolutely. I was going to DJ there this year. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I had artists, but they gave me artist passes. I was going to be on the bus with the artists. It was going to be incredible. Um, yeah. And like, everybody's like, why would you go back to this music festival? Ruined your life? Like, the music festival didn't ruin my life. You know, like <laughs> this damn show, you know, tried to, and like, you know, the, so it's, it's, it's like, no, it's a music festival, you know? Um, so yeah, absolutely. I'll go again. And yeah, I get invited to every music festival on the planet now. You yeah. know? So it's like good PR for them. Um, so no, I don't, you know, it's, yeah, I've had I've had to embrace it. Um, it's not like terrible. Like I, it's an, it can get annoying, you know. Like I see people all the time. They make comments like, "Oh, look, you know, it looks like Blake's at another stagecoach." Like if I hang out with like more than two girls, like, "Oh, I hope it's not a stagecoach." And I'm like, Jesus. But I don't know. Like you said, you just lean in. You got to yeah. lean in, mm-hmm. and you know, I've owned it. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's frustrating. Hopefully, there's a stagecoach next year because I'm definitely yeah, I'll definitely be there next year if it's if it happens. <laughs> so. In dealing with everything you dealt with after and like anxiety, you said you were breathing into a anxiety, paper bag. Yeah. Anxiety. I've been saying that wrong for years. <laughs> she says anxiety. Yeah. He just corrected me like last week. Um, dealing with anxiety and depression, things like that. So Shane has anxiety too. And uh, he recently got CBD oil. Do you, um, do you know anything about like that? Do you use it or do you have other ways mm-hmm. of coping? Yeah, I actually have some. I have some coffee right oh, now. Yeah, you um, can put in coffee. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, yeah, I definitely am a firm believer in like, yeah, like CBD and like kind of. For me, what I, what happens with me, and I sometimes I'll still it's I've gotten better, but I still catch myself as I I do a lot of the what ifs in my head. Mm-hmm. I go through a lot of what ifs and like what. So one one thing that I've stuck on and I've been stuck on since it happened was the reunion. And how I was treated at the reunion and things I wish I would have said. Right. And I sometimes I'll feel myself thinking about like I'll just kind of lose myself and I'll feel myself thinking about it and then I get angry or I get frustrated excuse me and so that's like something so anytime I can like just like ease my mind and kind of slow down a little bit and not think about that and not like think back to the past and that's something I've worked on you know in therapy and stuff um then I I, I do a bad day like I have a good day where I don't think about the show ever you know mm-hmm. but then I'll have a really bad day where all I can do is think about the show so I still have good days and bad days you know um but the biggest thing for me and one thing I realized was like my like physical health like when i let that get away from me that's when my mental health deteriorated um so like staying staying active getting fresh air 
um, doing, you know, I, I try to break a sweat every day at some point doing something to like, just like, I don't know, it just helps so much, you know, as far as instead of just like laying in my bed in a dark room watching mm. Netflix, you know, and sometimes I still do that. I'll have a bad day. But for the most part, it's like I, I, I like force myself as much as possible to get up, get out mm. and do things. And it's hard too because I guess now you have the option to lay in bed because you have, you know, sponsorships and other ways of making money that the show has afforded you. Do you think you'll ever work a traditional nine to five job again or is that not the life for you? Yeah, good question. And yeah, before I answer that back up, like I think if I had had a job, like a a traditional nine to five, maybe selling beer like I was off of paradise maybe i wouldn't have gone quite into the spiral i did because i would have had a reason to get out of bed but when i got back from the show not only did i not have a job really luckily i had money saved but i didn't even have sponsorships because you're not allowed to do sponsorships until after you know like three months after the show finishes airing so i was like i had no purpose i had no purpose in life so i just laid in bed and you know would i was just spiraling um and so I think I'm a big routine guy. So routine is huge, I think, mm-hmm. too, to like to help mental health. And I don't know if I I'd like right now, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to not have to. Um, I have, I guess, not necessarily lucky enough, but I guess I have the flexibility um, right now to do some things that I that I enjoy and that I'm passionate about. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely crossed my mind to have a more traditional job, especially I was, you know, I was DJing and I was doing appearances at colleges. Like I have an appearance in a couple of, I do virtual appearances now, which nice. is fun, but I was traveling and there was like one, one three week period where I hit like 11 different cities and I was just exhausted. Um, and it like, it crossed my mind, but like the money, you know, and the flexibility is fun, but like, oh, I was like, hey, it'd be nice to have just a nine to five, sit at home, you know, come home, you know, get a good night's sleep and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely wouldn't cross it out. And honestly, like if I can find a job I really enjoy and gives me some flexibility and mm. some freedom, I would definitely go back to it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I love routine. So. Is the Peloton worth it? How much are they? <laughs> They're too expensive. I know. Well, can we get a deal with them? Do they do partnerships? <laughs> and did you pay for the Peloton or did they just send it to you? No, they don't do deals. What? <laughs> I was kind of upset about it. No. Um, yeah, I didn't get any, no, no deals. And I don't know anybody who has, I don't think they need to, to be honest, especially right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like 2,500 bucks. Is it worth um, it? It's a lot, but I love it. I think it's well worth it. And I like a lot of my friends since, you know, I've told them about it and they've gotten it and they love it. It's just so great to be able to like roll out of bed, hop on a trip, you know, hop on yeah. the bike for an hour and burn like 800 calories and feel good about your day. And, and it's like, it's inspiring. Some of those trainers are incredible um, when they're like the, the things they say during the, the rides and stuff. So I highly recommend it. It's a little pricey, but um, I mean, it couldn't be more pricey than going to the gym for two years, you know? <laughs> Can you just tell me something they say during the ride just to motivate me right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a motivating person. No, they will be like, so there's this one, one of my favorite trainers. He always starts, um, he's, he's always starts each ride, you know, and he's like, put on your wigs, boys and girls. And he says like something super inspirational right after that. And then you get into the ride, you know? So they all have like their little quirks and their little things. And so you look forward to different rides with each person and they're yeah. like the music, they crush the playlists. And there's a lot of like, um, stuff that they remix themselves, you mm-hmm. know, so like it's, it's pretty cool. It's fun. I enjoy it. What's on your workout playlist if you're the one doing it? Ooh. Uh, so I like a lot of like the punk rock type stuff. So I like, really? like, like 182. Oh okay. yeah. Fallout boy. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's yeah. like, he's, he said like, um, punk rock kind of stuff. So like blink 182 fallout boy. See, I was going to say Baja man. See, I grew up on <laughs> punk rock. So that's like pop punk. I can, I can get into that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I like I liked the harder stuff, Blake. Not okay. the stuff oh. for uh, for softies here. But I do like some Blink. That's good. Um, I had a question yeah. about since we're talking about fitness. Uh, Tyler Cameron. 
To me, mm-hmm. he's a guy. He's obviously super ripped, but he he ended up dating Gigi Hadid for a bit. So to <laughs> me, that's like one of the ultimate parlays of career moves. Not that that's a career, but you know what I mean, of yeah. image after mm-hmm. The Bachelor. Who do you think has played their bachelor card the best in terms of forwarding their career afterwards? Uh, as far as like a guy, like a male? Or Any, male and anyone who's like done it really well and you're like, oh, that was kind of smart how they zigged or zagged here. Um, I think it's too early to tell right now with Tyler. I guess we'll see because right now, I mean, he's going to show, have so many appearances on Matt James season. It's going to be insane. <laughs> um, so we'll see how that works. But I think, I mean, honestly, Wells has done a really good job. He had, you know, the radio background mm-hmm. and the, that career already and he, you know, trained in it. So he had a lot of going for him when he came off the show and obviously Sarah Highland helps. Yeah. Um, so he's done a really good job and he's made, you know, he, he, and he's good at it. Like yeah. He's good at his job. He's very good at his job. So, yeah, that he's done a really good job. Jojo, I think, has done a great job. Rachel has been crushing it. Oh, she just interviewed huge. like Don Jr. I heard or something, or you know, for um, Donald Trump Jr. Extra, yeah, Whoa. for extra, yeah. So like, she's been crushing it. Caitlin Bristow, obviously, crushing it. Mm-hmm. You know, Jason's done a good yeah. job. Um, I think there's a lot of people, and I think honestly, coming off the show. It's so funny because you have people in your, you have just so many, you're getting pulled in so many different directions and you have so many different people in your ear telling you what to do, how to act. It's a lot and it's very overwhelming. Um, And most people are like, listen, don't be, you know, people are like, like I, when I came off the show, I was so scared of social media and like, I didn't want to be that thirsty guy on social media. Mm. Um, And looking back, I wish I would have, like, I wish it would have just been myself and not try to be over, you know, too safe. Like, I wish I would have just been myself and acted like an idiot on social media and like had fun with it and try to start instead of trying to be like this perfect, you know, like bachelor candidate, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, like, if I could go back, I would have done that. Like you have just so many people in years, you have producers in years, you have past contestants. Mm -hmm. And I think now when I first, even when I got off show, people were like, you know, this is just a spark, just a flash in the pan. You're not gonna be able to do this so long, but Honestly, that's not true. Like you can, if you do it right, you can do this. You can have a career for years in whether it be in podcasting or correspondence or things like that. So it's like now you almost don't want to take every deal in any deal because you want to build a brand and you can, you really can. I mean, you can make stupid money on Instagram. Don't get me wrong. Women make seven figures. Some of those women make seven figures coming off the show the first year. But you can you can prolong it a lot longer than people think now. Mm -hmm. Mm. No, I, I, uh, I believe it. And I just... I'm sorry. I completely forgot what I was going to say. Oh, I had something to ask you. Sorry, I just had a baby. You have to you have to excuse me. My brain hasn't recovered yet from well, being pregnant. That's quite I, all right. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. One of my yeah. last questions here was just what are the mm-hmm. next steps for for you? Like if you had a five year plan, do you do you have a five year plan? Uh, yeah, I get asked that. And honestly, I don't. I, I, I used to be a big three five year plan guy. But honestly, if I was like that, I wouldn't have gone on the show because I would have been like, I'm going to, I have this plan for my career and I'm going to, I was at the time on to be a brand manager, you know, in a beer, in the beer, beer industry. And like, if I, if I had been so solely focused on that goal, I wouldn't have gone on the show and I wouldn't have had these amazing opportunities and met all these amazing people and had these incredible experiences. So like, I really don't, like, I have an idea. Like I, um, I started DJing, you know, and I, I, I was going incredible. I had a residency in Atlantic city and had a residency in Vegas at a pool. Like it was going to be, that was going to be my, like my, you know, next thing. Um, it's on hold right now. We'll see. Hopefully, you know, it pops back up. Um, so that was, you know, that's the plan. Um, it's, it's fun. It's such a blast and something I've become really passionate about. And 
I started a podcast. Um, What's that called? Behind the Rose. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people think it's, you know, I mean, it is a play on words of like Rose, you know, a, a bachelor. But there's actually a honky tonk here in Denver called the Grizzly Rose. It's like this country bar here. One of like one of the last original like OG honky tonks in, in America. There's a few left. Um, and it's called the Grizzly Rose. So we interview. The goal plan was to interview every artist who was going to be in their contract. They had to be on our podcast after or before nice and they pulled some huge names but obviously covid hit so that put another damper on that um but luckily i have a lot of relationships with a lot of musicians and everybody thinks like you know blake is just went stagecoach and like he's never been to it but like i have a ton Mm -hmm. of relationships with a ton of musicians like dan and shay called me during paradise to check in on me you know like i've got a lot of really cool um, relationships, a lot of people, um, and my buddy Eric Bradley, who's also doing the, he's co-hosting the podcast. He has a ton of relationships. So we're like, I'm Zoom, I'm interviewing um, Jimmy Allen tonight, you know, nice. um, for the podcast. And so um, it is going to be a bachelor podcast. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm going to have bachelor <laughs> people on. We're going to talk bachelor, of course, but also like, I want to, you know, make it a lot more musician yeah. um, focused and kind of their stories and mental health. That's it's huge. it's really interesting to me talking to musicians about how they deal with anxiety and mental health mm-hmm. and being on the road nine months of the year away from their family and the stress and pressure that comes with performing and putting out an album. And so it's really cool to like listen to their stories and how they deal with certain things. And I just had Sharna from Dancing with the Stars on and she was incredible because she's been through some dark times in her mm-hmm. life and the way she talks about how she got out of the, the you know slump she was in and how she looks at mental health now and deals with the haters on Dancing with the Stars and the trolls. So it's just a kind of a, and I'll be all for you know, everything. We talk about everything, um, but I'm really excited about it. And it's it's been we were number three on iTunes, you know, a week ago. So it was, it was a good start, and it's been a lot of fun. And I'm meeting a lot of people, some of my childhood heroes. You know, I'm interviewing. So it's like a really cool. It's a really cool opportunity. How long great. is every episode? We do. It's pretty quick. Forty five minutes max. Oh, nice, cool. Um, you know, basically, you know, what would take you to drive to work, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's hopefully it'll start to slowly build. Um, and we'll get some more, more and more people on there. Um, but it's, it's become a passion project of mine for sure. That's amazing. And before, uh, we get going, I, what the hell's a honky tonk? I thought it was country <laughs> music and you said it's one of the original honky tonks left. Now I'm just confused. We're Canadian. So forgive us. Yeah, no, honestly, I don't actually know what honky tonk means, but it is, it is like, so if you go to like the Grizzly Rose here on like a, you know, like a Wednesday, like without a band, if there's yeah. not a band playing, it's just like, you know, like they're playing music. It's line dancing. Like there's just people okay. line dancing. So it's like country. It's like so country, that, like country, a honky like back tonk country. is where you go yeah. to line dance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like a, yeah. Honky tonk is like, everybody's wearing cowboy hats and boots and they're like line dancing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm officially satisfied. Shane. What? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Finally. <laughs> no, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Blake. <laughs> I just, my last question is like this Blake we see, obviously, and like anytime someone's on camera, I'm putting on a bit of a facade. I'm nicer, kinder than I am. How much are you able to be yourself on camera? And in the world of The Bachelor, are you able to? And who's really good at being themselves on camera? And who, in your opinion, is different on camera the second that red light's blinking? That's a good one. Yeah, I've never been asked that. So for me, um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much me on camera. I think now if I went on camera, I'd be way different. I'd be incredibly, you know, my walls would be up and mm-hmm. I'd be, I don't think I trust anybody, you know, and that's why everybody asks me, you know, would you go back on the show? And it's like, I don't, I, I don't know. Like I talked earlier, like you have to be open and vulnerable for that to work. So like if you want to meet somebody on camera, on that beach, on whatever, no. you have to be vulnerable and open. And I just don't know if I could be that now because I don't trust anybody, um, which would be, it'd be super hard in that environment. Um, but yeah, before, like what you saw, yeah, I mean, 
yeah, I, I think I was, I was almost too much like the nice guy. And I took kind of like took, I trusted everybody and I think yeah. it kind of bit me in the ass. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately I think that was me on camera. Um, and then as far as like people who are different on camera and not even necessarily in a bad way, like sometimes people like are, di- are great on, on and off. They are mm-hmm. different, but like they're not bad on ca- or off camera yeah. and good on camera. I don't know really too many of those, but I think some people will talk more maybe on a camera where in real life they're incredibly shy, but yeah. what you see on TV, they're very outgoing because maybe they're just on a one-on-one conversation mm-hmm. or they're, they're only showing him talking mm-hmm. or her talking. Um, you know, I think people that would be surprised with how quiet they are. Joe, grocery drawer, he's very quiet in person. Very, I mean, maybe you could see that on the show, yeah. Yeah. but he's very, very reserved. Um, who else is kind of reserved where you'd be? Uh, Clay is a good example too. Like Clay, Clay is, is a, I think he's actually kind of reserved on the show where in real life he's a lot more fun mm-hmm. um, and like outgoing. Some people, oh, you know what? Hannah G is a great example of this. On camera, she just like kind of kind of freezes up a little bit. And I think if anything, I think that's not a bad thing. I think you should be uncomfortable with cameras on you, you know, where in real life, Hannah G is pretty, she's funny and she's witty um, and she's easy to talk to. And so like, I think sometimes people, Bibiana, another one, I go on, on, on I keep thinking of people <laughs> where like, I think in real life, you'd be surprised because they're way more open and mm-hmm. like relaxed where if cameras in your face, a lot of people clam up. Yeah. So they say you forget about the camera after a while. That's not always true for some people, I guess. Exactly. Not always true. Like I, I would. Paradise is really hard though because they are like in your face and there's a lot of like hidden cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the Bachelorette, like I would forget they were there all the time. Especially on those one-on-one dates, they're yeah. like so far away and you're so into the conversation, you just completely forget wow. they're there. Yeah. All right. Awesome. I think that's it for yeah. me. Yeah. Blake, awesome. where can people find you if they want to check you out on Instagram, your podcast? Yeah. No. Yeah. So uh, Instagram Balake on if that's from a Key and Peele skit. Do you guys know that one? <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, oh, wait, wait, no, that's the supply teacher. That's the supply yes. teacher one. I've seen that. I'm a teacher. Oh, Kids yeah, show yeah, me yeah. that all the time. That's yeah. one of yeah, the ones yeah. I do know. Yeah, I do know that one. Yes. Balake, yeah. So balake.h uh, on Instagram. Um, and then, yeah, uh, check out the podcast, Behind the Rose. And yeah, hopefully I'll uh, have another DJ set in a city near you. We'll see. But, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Ever come to Toronto. Okay, well, yeah, we're I will. I love Toronto. Oh, you guys, I didn't know you were in Toronto. Oh, awesome. Yeah. 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 I've been out there a couple times. Oh, it's well, yeah. Email us when you're coming. We'll uh, go to one of your shows. No, for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. That'd be awesome. Well, thanks well, for having me, guys. I appreciate yeah. it. Blake, thanks thank you on. so much for coming on. We really appreciated it. Folks, check them out. Have a good yeah. one. Enjoy yeah. the snow tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. For real. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go, Blake. I love how he approaches things. How does he approach things? Well, he's just so calm. He's so goofy. He's so like unabashedly honest like he he doesn't hold anything back and he's just so willing to go anywhere in a conversation agreed yeah i was really i I don't know if i was hoping to catch him in like some awkward moment i think we were a little bit no i just wanted to see how he reacted i wasn't actually rooting for one way or the other but i was surprised in a way when we brought up questions from wells or some things that wells brought up that he was kind of defensive and Mm -hmm. i appreciate that because it was such a a knee-jerk, honest reaction yeah. that you wouldn't always get because people are so media-trained, especially he's been on The Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise. You'd think he'd kind of be like, okay, I know what they want from me and I'm not going to give them that. But he doesn't give a shit. Yeah, yeah. really respect Blake for just how he is, uh, like you said, unabashedly himself. Mm-hmm. But now we're going to an interview. I don't know anything about it. Was it good? <laughs> I. She's Australian. I know She's that. Australian. Uh, I 
learned a lot from Dr. Nicole Hyatt and I found it fascinating and things like this topics like this are so crucial for especially women I'd say all new parents but especially women to start reading about start educating themselves about and start preparing for before they have their kids because we get wrecked physically and mentally wrecked so you do need to prepare and honestly had I talk to somebody like Nicole before giving birth to Lucy so before having our first baby I don't think I would have had well I don't think I can control postpartum anxiety but I don't think that I would anxiety oh geez Louise I don't think that you can control postpartum anxiety but I do think that I would have been better prepared to deal with all the crap that you deal with when you first have a new baby so I do highly recommend it and yeah let's check it out Okay, but first, Alex, tell us who we're supported by. We are supported by Hello Bello. Co-founded by parents Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard, this eco-friendly line was created to eliminate the choice so many parents face between what's best for their kids and what's best for their budget. Everybody deserves premium products and non-premium prices, and that's just what Hello Bello does. They have super soft diapers and what Shane and I would consider the best diaper rash cream ever. And their diapers are the softest. They're made of a mix of plant-based materials to deliver super absorbent leak protection and a really comfy fit. I want a bed made out of that diaper. I think it would also... uh, It would also be a cute bed because of those patterns. And I wouldn't have to get up to use the washroom in the middle of the night anymore. (laughs) That's disgusting. But, you know, you might be onto something because they are hypoallergenic, they are eco-friendly, and they are effective. So who knows? Maybe the absorbency would actually keep us both dry. There's only one way to find out. (laughs) You can go to the store locator on their website to check out which places near you carry Hello Bello. However, if you go to hellobello.ca and purchase a bundle online, you can use the promo code thisfamilytree30 at checkout to get 30% off your order. Again, that's hellobello.ca and thisfamilytree30 for 30% off. And yes, we said 30% off. So maybe skip going in the store for your first time out and get them online to get those great savings. But we are also supported by Seedlip, the world's first non-alcoholic spirit. Crafted without alcohol, sugar, or calories, Seedlip spirits solve the dilemma of what you drink when you're not drinking. And, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit this mm-hmm. episode. It's something that has changed my life in a way for the better. I was never the guy to drink non-alcoholic beverages. I didn't see the point in it. I just wanted that real booze. But then I realized this pretty much does the same thing without all the problems associated yeah. with the booze. Even a few drinks were making me feel terrible the next day, which is why I'm kind of taking a break right now from real alcohol and just focusing on my seed lip. And Seedlip is crafted using a bespoke process that involves the traditional copper distillation of botanicals. Each of Seedlip's three variants, so we have Spice 94, Garden 108, and Grow 42, offer something for every type of drinker. They each perfectly pair with like a simple splash of tonic. However, if you check out the Seedlip cocktail book, you'll find way more complex recipes that Shane and I are trying to make on our own now, and it's so much fun. It's very, very fun. Yeah, so head over to seedlipdrinks.com or .ca and follow at Seedlip underscore NA on Instagram for more ways to enjoy. But now let's get to our episode with the one and only Dr. Nicole Hyatt. Folks, we are here with Dr. Nicole Hyatt from COPE. You are the founder of COPE, which is the Center of Perinatal Excellence. And 
Dr. Nicole, actually, before we begin, I'm just going to let you know. So I'm uh, feeding our two-month-old baby right now. And if she gets out of control, Shane is going to quietly take her out of the room. And then you and I will just continue on. So She's the pro interviewer anyway. Apologize so. if that happens. Uh, but Lovely. <laughs> Dr. Nicole, um, what exactly are you a doctor in? What is your specialty? Okay, so I specialize in an area called perinatal mental health. Uh, so this is mental health all around the time of having a baby. So this is the time in a woman's life we know she is most likely to develop a mental health problem. Um, so it's very common. There's a lot of different challenges that come with becoming a parent um, and right through the journey of being a parent. So um, this is what makes uh, women particularly, but also men, most vulnerable to mental health problems at this time of life. And that's the area that I specialise in. So how many women, like how common is it? Because you always hear that. And I'm an incredibly happy person. I uh, very easily get over big challenges, I think. And I don't get down very easily. But even with the birth of my first daughter, I had postpartum anxiety. So how, how common is this for women to experience? So um, anxiety is extremely common. So we know that up to one in five women will experience and anxiety condition during pregnancy mm -hmm. and one in five in the postnatal period as well. So when you think about those numbers, it's a large number of pregnant and new mothers experiencing uh, anxiety. Um, when it comes to depression, we know that up to, well, certainly in Australia, and it's similar in com uh, countries like the US, uh, up to one in 10 women will experience uh, depression during pregnancy and that increases to one in seven in the postnatal period. So when you put those things together, there's a lot of women likely to experience anxiety and or depression. Mm -hmm. And it's all true, also true that around 50% of people will experience both of those conditions at the same time. Um, and this is extremely debilitating. Yeah. Um, the challenges that come with adapting to a new baby can already be challenging, but getting through the day and coping with feelings of being overwhelmed uh, with anxiety and depression just makes it that much more difficult. So is there anything like, and oh, this question might even stress people out, I don't know, and give them anxiety, but are there risk factors going into it? So, you know, like I think the obvious might be a history of depression or something like that, but are, are there any other risk factors for people like me who don't typically suffer from anything like that? Hmm. Yeah, so um, you're right, the most strongest predictor or the major risk factor is having a previous history mm -hmm. um, of anxiety or depression. So if you've experienced anxiety or depression in the past, the likelihood of this occurring again is is higher. And that's probably the strongest predictor. Uh, other things like um, certain personality types, we know that people who are what we have call have trait anxiety. So people who generally like to be really organized, uh, generally like to have control over things, those people are at particularly particular risk of anxiety because we know, of course, when having a baby, you can't control everything. <laughs> no. And to some degree, you just need to let it go. Um, and um, some people have more uh, sort of that sort of personality where they like to mm -hmm. be ordered and have control in their life. So that is actually a risk factor, particularly for um, anxiety. But also over time, if not being able to have that control and that uh, feel that you're managing things and being the confident person that you always are, that can often then uh, increase your likelihood of uh, feeling down and uh, depressed also. So that's another risk factor. 
Other things like not having good access to support. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be support from your partner or support more broadly. So that can place you at greater risk. Uh, things like having a uh, history of childhood uh, trauma or abuse um, in your childhood or other times of life. Often um, when having a baby, it's a very vulnerable time. So uh, those things can come to the surface, particularly things like if you've experienced sexual or emotional abuse in the past. If you haven't had a good relationship with your own mother, that can be another risk factor because this is the first time you might have experienced Mm -hmm. um, having a baby, particularly with your first. So it's natural because you have no reference point that you reflect on your own childhood experience. And if that was something that was particularly uh, traumatic or troublesome, you can actually be reliving those memories as you reflect on those experiences. So that can cause another level of uh, vulnerability. Family violence and drug and alcohol misuse are two other major risk factors um, to developing a mental health problem. So there is a range of risk factors and that's why in Australia we not only look at symptoms, um, our clinical guidelines recommend we don't only look at whether you might be experiencing symptoms here and now, but also what is your risk of developing a mental health problem? Mm -hmm. And we ask about the presence of those different risk factors so we can identify if someone is a particular risk and might need more careful monitoring for their mental health during their pregnancy or in the postnatal period. Yeah, and so it's so interesting because it's such a multifaceted approach. But yeah, I had a very idyllic childhood, I guess, but I would still find myself calling my mom every two days, you know, because I, I had really hard pregnancies. I have lupus, and it was very difficult for me to get my head around that I was going through that much pain and emotional distress because I thought pregnancy was going to be a breeze. So I found myself calling my mom every two days, like crying and thanking her and apologizing her for being a bitch when I was 14, just because she had gone through so much for me. And for somebody like me who who can't relate to the, you know, the risk factors, um, how many women, like how common is it for women who don't have any risk factors to deal with something like postpartum anxiety or depression? Because it took me aback. Uh, so another risk factor is um, major life stresses. Mm-hmm. So for you, for example, having um, lupus and health uh, complications in your pregnancy would be considered a major life stress. So um, that in itself is is a risk factor. So although you might not have any of those historical risk factors or biological risk factors, the stress you incurred in pregnancy uh, could certainly um, be considered a, a risk factor in its own right. Mm-hmm. And then depending, of course, on the impact of that risk factor, um, that also places, um, you know, so there was certainly a risk factor there for you. Um, the other thing I think is really important to note, um, just in, in relation to what you're saying then, is often we go into the pregnancy with and um, early parenthood with very high expectations oh, yeah. about what this experience is supposed to be like. And again, because this is a first time, you've never been through it before, you have no reference point, um, it's very common that we look at other things around us um, to get our sort of build our perceptions about what this is going to be like. And now often that's beautiful advertising by all these lovely <laughs> brands where everything's gorgeous and that's what we're expecting. Instagram, everything, you know, we're supposed to be glowing and radiant when we're pregnant. You know, we'll fall pregnant as soon as we're ready to fall pregnant. (laughs) Having a baby is all about those moments of looking it into each other's eyes and it's just these beautiful still moments. Uh, No one's talking about the sleep deprivation, the screaming baby with colleagues. 
the lupus in pregnancy. Um, so because this really informs our perceptions and ideals about what pregnancy is and motherhood is supposed to be like, often that makes it harder and we feel like we're failing mm-hmm. when we're actually not failing, but our expectations were so high and they often weren't based on reality. Mm-hmm. So this incre- increases our levels of uh, grief and disappointment that we're not having the experience that we expected that we would, but also our feelings of failure that why is everything everything's perfect for everyone else except me? But it's not that it's only happening to you. It's just that we're not being presented with a reality. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's really important that we um, are aware of the expectations that we are developing in pregnancy about what pregnancy and motherhood and parenthood is supposed to be like and meant to be like because often we're basing those things on things that are not actually real. And that, of course, then contributes to our mental health as well. No, absolutely. And I I actually read something today, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it said something like, society expects women to work like they aren't raising children and raise children like they're stay-at-home moms or like they're not working. And it is this insane, unrealistic pressure on women where, you know, if they are a working mother, and in Canada, we're lucky enough to have a 12-month to 18-month mat leave, as long as you're not self-employed. But a lot of our listeners are from the States, and they might only have six weeks, which is – I th- that's unbearable. I can't even fathom only having six weeks. What's it like in Australia? Uh, so when I had my children, it was six weeks. Oh, jeez. And I think it's extended now to um, 10 or 12 weeks. It's, but still, it's still nothing. a very small window of time. And you're right, you know, we see imagery of the woman in the office suit balancing the baby on the hip and, you know, that's what it's going to be like. Well, you know, two minutes with a baby and, you know, well, that's just not possible. Um, and it is unrealistic. So, um, you know, I think that's another really big challenge for women, having to feel like you're choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, am I choosing career or motherhood? Um, and whichever way you go, there's judgments by other people because, you know, the people who are full-time mothers are judging those who are working, those who are mm-hmm. working are judging the full-time mothers. So there's this whole other level of culture and expectations here as well at a social level. Um which again are just more pressures around, you know, trying to do everything right, but there is no right answer. You've got to do what's right for you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that's where believing in yourself and looking at your own circumstances, looking at your values and what's right for you. And we need to respect and support women with the decisions that they make um, because that's what's right for them and ultimately mm-hmm. what's right for them is going to be what's right for their family. So because you've spoken to like so many women and your sample size would be so much bigger than mine, that resentment, because I think there is so much judgment and that places so much undue pressure on new moms. And I'm on my second kid now, but I feel like even though I'm so much more confident, the second I feel like somebody's giving me a little side eye, I get so anxious and so in my own head. But where do you think that judgment comes from? Is it a place of jealousy, resentment, fear? Like, Because I think it's so good we need to start catching it in ourselves before we're also quick to judge other women mm. or other mothers. Yeah, look, I think there's a, a few things that are probably going on. I think one is um, when you become a mother, there are big changes to your identity, right? So mm-hmm. um, you might have been a professional or you might have been very good at this, or but suddenly there's this change in identity um, because you've got this whole new um, responsibility, but mm-hmm. this whole new role in your life and a whole new purpose in your life when you become a mum. And so for some mums um, who might have 
really want motherhood and they want that. They want to encapsulate that as their identity wholly and heartily. That is now what and who they are. Yeah. They are a mother. So they're grasping that with both hands and living and breathing it and it's, it's becoming their whole reason to be. Um, others who might have invested a lot in career or love what they do, they want to integrate being a mama but still being whatever that other yeah. thing was. Um, and so, you know, I think that it, it, we need to accept that people um, want to be different things and this is an opportunity, motherhood presents an opportunity where we um, can choose which way we define ourselves and mm-hmm. how we're defined by ourselves more than anything. But because uh, there's that sort of judgment about whether you're doing this or doing that, how does that reflect on someone else? Uh, so, you know, everyone's comparing themselves with others as well because mm-hmm. they're trying to prove themselves to themselves but also prove to themselves that they're doing the right thing. But really at the end of the day, the only person you're proving yourself to is you and yeah. what is right for you is not comparable to what is right for someone else. Mm-hmm. But I think we're always comparing ourselves to see how we can doing. Uh, are we able to do everything? Um, will I be judged for this or that? So I think that sort of breeds this sort of uh, context of potential judgment um, and we need to be really aware of it. And I think we're not always, we don't always look at it in the face and say that's what's going on there. So there's this underlying sort of judgment all the time uh, and coming from the fact that we're trying to prove to ourselves that we're good at this um, mm-hmm. and then potentially integrate other roles in that as well. So I think that's sort of there as part of the, it's just underlying yeah. all the time and we need to be aware of it and sometimes we're not. I was, I totally wasn't. Before I became a mother, I would just in like just automatically make judgments on parents um for the most stupid things that once you become a parent you realize you know this is so complex like I'd be in the grocery store there'd be a kid freaking out in the aisle a toddler and I'd be like what did that mom do to make this kid scream like that oh boy and then I keep walking and it's like oh my two-year-old has a tantrum every time we go anywhere and I let her tantrum it out on the floor because she's going to feel those feelings. And I just tell her, okay, honey, I'm here for you. And when you're ready, we're going to keep moving. But this is no way to act. You know, we, we got to get ourselves together, whatever. And I see people walking by and I see people judging me. And I think now as a mom, I'm quicker to recognize if I'm judging somebody else. But for me, it always comes from a place of fear. And it's like I fear that I'm not – doing enough like I might see somebody and I'm like oh my gosh like look what they're doing and then even though I respect what they're doing and you know how often they get to see their kid or how great they're doing at their job I then say oh well then that means that you know they're obviously not home all the time and whatever it may be but it's it's from a place of fear that I'm not doing as much as I can mm-hmm. and that's hard mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that comes from expectations in mm-hmm. society. And, you know, it's true. I think once you have your own kids, you're probably more less judgmental um, <laughs> of um, others. But also everyone's, you know, everyone's journey with children is completely different as well. And even it can be different from one baby to another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's one thing if you've had a, you know, very placid, relaxed child um, who's very settled, there's no health issues. Um, and you think, well, this is what motherhood's like. Why are other people struggling so much? Um, Obviously, you're not a good mother or a natural mother, whereas, you know, give someone a baby with colic and reflux who's screaming all the time, um, it's just so different, Mm -hmm. Um, and you cannot compare one person's experience to another, but you can 
be open-minded and acknowledge that um, some people have more challenges than others and we need to acknowledge. And, you know, just the little uh, smile to that woman in the supermarket and letting them know that we've been there, um, it'll pass. Um, just letting her know you're not judging her because on top of whatever's going on, there's always that other, as mm-hmm. you described, that other level of fear and judgment about, which just creates another stress on top of the situation that's already happening, which is very unhelpful. Oh, totally. And you mentioned identity and the crisis that, you know, women will go through when they bring in a child and then suddenly they're not that career-focused woman or that socially-focused woman anymore. And they also are now this mother and their personality has to become so much more dynamic and you're forced into it. Um, it's not an easy transition for so many people. And I, you know, have a lot of friends who their lives were turned upside down. Do you have any tips for women who are going through that transition, not having an easy time with it? Like the who am I phase? Yeah, look, I think um, it comes back to um, really taking stock and reflecting on your values Mm -hmm. um, and what's important to you. But also um, remembering that the context of having a baby, I mean, although it seems like everything right now when you're in the thick of it, um, it's it's a stage in your life. Try and keep that big picture perspective. This is a stage in your life and at different times of your life, there's going to be different demands. And those demands that come with a child will change as the child goes through different age groups as well. Um, and you can start getting, you know, it'll get to the point where the children do start going to school or nursery or whatever it is, and you can start getting little glimpses of your life back. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about what that's going to look like and what's right for you. Now, for some, that might be keeping the home and, um, you know, provide doing everything. Others, it might be going back to work. Again, it's what's right for you and what's going to make you happy and feel fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think a couple of things in terms of struggling with that identity, uh, one is remembering the context. This is a period of time, and it's going to be a time that's going to change, but also uh, reflecting on what makes you happy um, because and what your values are because that's what ultimately is going to put you in a better place um, as a person and as a parent. Mm-hmm. And now we've, we've been talking about women, and of course that's, because I am one. So that's the experience I speak from. And if Shane was here, I know that he would be asking about fathers in this or the male, you know, the male partners. Um, now, do you deal with men as well at your center? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So men, um, it's really, it's really an interesting time for men. I think in some ways that um, having a, being a father today is very different from what our fathers and the roles that our fathers oh, were expected to play mm-hmm. when, um, when they were fathers. So in the same way that we've talked about women not having a reference point when it's your first baby um, and you're sort of going back to your own childhood or looking at the way your mother might have done things with you as far as you can remember, for fathers, there's this other challenge that they don't even necessarily have that because it was more traditional. Their fathers would have got probably more likely to have gone to work and been the breadwinners, um, less expectations on them that they've got to be hands-on dads and be involved. Um, I certainly know that my father probably never changed a nappy, <laughs> whereas fathers today are expected to do all that all the time. So I think uh, it, there's a whole unique range of stresses for fathers because um uh, in that way that fathers um, don't have necessarily role models that, um, with their own parenting. We know that fathers are also um, under a lot of, so they're trying to be the, the really involved dad at home, but also expected to still often be the main provider or keep going with the breadwinner uh, role. So there's that. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think things are challenging for dads at the moment. Um, and, you know, we know that up to, uh, you know, one in 10 fathers will experience anxiety or depression. One in 10. That's, yeah, that's similar. It's comparable. Or the postnatal period. Yeah, it's comparable to the women's numbers. Yeah, nearly, not quite, but yeah. um, pretty much up there. And I think um, the level of stress, so stress is different from anxiety and depression because stress go, comes and goes mm-hmm. um, and it's related to the stressor at the time, whereas anxiety and depression are ongoing conditions that need to be addressed and treated. Um, but certainly the levels of underlying stress there and that sustained stress um, can lead to what we call distress and then there more vulnerability to conditions right. like anxiety and or depression. So, okay, so for an example, Shane right now, he's outside. You could probably hear him when the baby was crying and he went from the backyard to the front. And so right now he's working from home because of COVID. He's dealing now with another baby in the house. So we have a demanding toddler and a very needy baby. And he is working his real job and then he is working for us in our business and our podcast. And I know that he is feeling stress and he's feeling a lot of anxiety. And he talked about um, a few weeks after we had Betty, our, our second daughter, that he was going through what felt like a kind of depression. And so how can how can women or you know, mothers recognize that in their partners and offer to help them. Because I I do think that oftentimes the other partner in the relationship who didn't give birth and who isn't going through the hormonal change, they often want to suppress their feelings or not make their feelings known because they don't want to possibly rock the boat or they think, well, I didn't just have a baby. Like I need to, Mm. you know, my feelings aren't as important. And I know there's a time and a place for everybody to be emotional and to have their, their needs met, but how can we support our partners if we think that they're going through something like that? Yeah. So, um, the first thing I'd say is it's obviously very important to talk about it. And I think fathers feel like often, uh, yes, I haven't been through the pregnancy or had birth. So mm-hmm. it's almost like my feelings compared to yours are not legitimate because you've been through this yeah. physiological or physical transformation. I haven't, but they have been through a huge emotional, um, and mental trans, uh, transformation. And almost like I think the other thing is that, you know, when you're pregnant, you're um, experiencing the changes and you're coming to terms with the changes because the baby's growing inside you. But mm-hmm. let's face it, until you're even showing, it's not even really a reality for guys. Oh, yeah. Um, so they're not having the same exposure to what's coming as you are, as you live with uh, pregnancy, etc. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, some fathers describe when the birth happens, it's almost like this shock. Oh, my God, suddenly <laughs> I was a father. Whereas the woman's had more time to sort of psychologically and emotionally prepare because they've been connected to the pregnancy, etc. So that's one thing for dads. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think for dads is um, they often feel like they have to be the rock. Right. Um, so fathers in Australia and research have described feeling like they have to be the rock. They have to be stable. Um, they've got to keep it all together. Be the providers. That's right. Mm-hmm. And um, not only uh, financially but also emotionally. They've yeah. got to keep things stable. They're the bloke. Yeah. Um, they're the man. So <laughs> they... Um, there's often this, it's, it's very common for fathers to suppress the way that they're feeling because they feel like that that's part of their role as a father mm-hmm. is to be the solid foundation and be the rock. Um, so look, it's really important that for men that they, um, that we stop and we do ask that. And in Australia, we are looking at, um, uh, we are very adamant about, um, doing screening to identify, uh, emotion, your risk and the 
development of anxiety and depression um, in expectant and new mums. And right. now that is also being extended to dads as well. That's so, amazing. Um, that we we are asking dads about um, whether they whether they are likely to be experiencing anxiety and or depression, uh, so that we can identify these conditions early. Uh, because those statistics are high, it is true that um, if the woman is experiencing anxiety and depression, the male is fifty percent more likely oh, wow. to develop it himself. But certainly, men can develop it in their own right with these multiple roles and expectations, and that feeling that they have to be the strong supportive rock yeah. foundation all those things can contribute to them uh sort of not acknowledging how they might be feeling or the pressures and that stops them putting things in place that can be really helpful for preventing and helping with stress relief and preventing anxiety and depression so things like making sure that guys have time for um keeping part of their old world as well you know still socializing with their friends whether in whatever form that needs to be depending on the day um <laughs> or the pandemic but, um Yes, um, <laughs> keeping connected, doing things um, that were part of their old life, whether it was playing sport or being part of a team or whatever it was, it's really important for their own identity that they keep um, part of themselves also. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with women, mothers, we often, well, certainly in Australia, we have mothers' groups. Fathers don't necessarily have fathers' groups. Um, their friendships that they had um, might not be with people who now have children. They might and those people might not be as accommodating oh, or tough. interested when you've got children. Yeah. So their support networks can uh, drop off. So this is where it's really important to, um, in preparing for fatherhood, like motherhood, is that we take the time to prepare um, our social networks, our, look at our village of support, look at where we need to maybe strengthen that and look at developing other interests and being proactive about developing that network of support and keeping our identity with the things that are going to be important for our own emotional and mental health whether, and, you know, things like exercise and things are really, mm-hmm. really important, but keeping those hobbies or activities which were part of your own life a part, a very important part of you retaining your own sense of self as you transition to becoming a father. Mm-hmm. So do you, th- do you think because it takes them so long to, you know, feel the effects themselves of a new life joining the family, and that's the birth, um, do you think that men generally are, just to say it succinctly, I guess, like largely unprepared and should do more preparation yeah I think so I think so um because it, it can be a big shock to the system plus there's mm. um and this is why in Australia again and it's, it's certainly available for, for people overseas we have what we call the ready to cope guide okay so this is a free fortnight you, you know in pregnancy you can sign up and receive um emails every week saying you know your baby's the size of yeah. a coffee bean and now it's the size of a small grapefruit and this is what's happening now. The baby's growing its fingernails, etc. Mm-hmm. So we've developed this guide, um, one for mothers and one for fathers, um, really about the emotional and mental health preparation. And we drip feed the information from six weeks pregnancy right through through the birth and for the first year of motherhood oh, wow. and fatherhood. And it's a way of talking about the changes and adjusting mm-hmm. and things that I can do to prepare myself, uh, things I need to be aware of, um, and identifying, you know, managing stress, managing expectations, building your village of support. Mm-hmm. It's really about providing this information to prepare expectant and new mums and dads um, in pregnancy and early because no one's really talking about it. There's nowhere that yeah. you even know or what to Google to look up <laughs> to find this stuff. No. But it's, it's a really good way of focusing on um, emotionally and mentally preparing for motherhood and for fatherhood. And we've found that it's actually... Um, 
people who have gone through the Ready to Cope Guide have indicated they felt uh, safe and supported Mm -hmm. um, throughout the journey. And for those who did experience um, anxiety or depression, um, importantly, they said that it was really important in terms of them identifying the signs early and seeking help early. Because we know with women, for example, 74% of women in our um, research who had anxiety and depression didn't seek help until they reach crisis point. Oh, geez. Um, and that's for a range of reasons, like denying the symptoms, putting it down to pregnancy or early parenthood, uh, feeling ashamed, feeling like they'd failed. Um, and really, so that prevents help seeking. And men, it's even more so because they feel like they have to be the rock. Um, they feel like they have to be strong. So there's this denial of symptoms. Um, but the Ready to Cope Guide, I'd really encourage expectant and new mums and dads to sign up for that because mm-hmm. that's how that they can be aware, informed and prepared. No, I think that's genius. Like every week, so um, our baby would get, you know, a week older in utero on Sundays. So then every Sunday morning before we got out of bed, I'd say, okay, Shane, like our baby is the size of a radish this week. And we'd go through, you know, what the baby was going through, what the mother was going through. But it stops there because, of course, the dad's not really going through anything yet. And I think that if they had something that spoke to them instead of just their wife being like, honey, this is how you're supposed to be feeling, then I think that that would make them feel so much more involved and give them a sense of almost ownership over everything that's happening, if that makes sense. And involved. They're involved in the pregnancy. It's part of them and it's part of their evolution of yeah. becoming a dad um, and it helps them prepare and be informed. No, I think that's fantastic. And okay, so the fact that both parents can experience these, re- like really, it, it is so common. I didn't know it was that common in men to the one in 10. Uh, so that's kind of shocking to me. Um, so with both parents that are, you know, going through this massive change, they're going through a huge identity crisis or an identity shift Obviously, you know, your relationship, it was the two of you drinking wine every night, kicking your feet up, having great sex, loving each other, having no issues. You now have this thing in between you and it ours not only ruins podcasts, but also ruins, you know, a lot of what would be maybe intimate nights. And that's difficult for people to go through and to have the one person that you count on that relationship kind of, you know, thrown into thrown for a loop for a little bit so like how how many marriages or partnerships do you think go through some kind of stress or difficulty is like a hundred percent is it clinically okay (laughs) yeah look i'd say it's a hundred percent it's every partnership is going to go through challenges Mm -hmm. um and because there's going to be more demands on both as individuals and there's going to be challenges to the partnership because there's not the same time and energy to just invest in each other and have that luxury of just, you know, looking into each other's eyes over a glass of wine and thinking about how great life is. Um, There's just not those opportunities anymore. So um, it's really about, you know, the relationship and that those special times almost are put on hold while everything else and the strong relationships will endure that. Um, I also think it's really interesting uh, looking at the dynamics of a relationship uh, before the baby has come along. So, for example, if you're in a partnership where um, you've obviously been qu- quite a nurturing sort of uh, partner, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're providing everything and you're providing that emotional support and nurturing. Mm-hmm. So 
for a partnership where that's been before the baby arrived and then the baby comes along, um, suddenly the baby gets put first yeah. and that can make the partner resentful because mm-hmm. you were serving my needs sort of thing. Yeah. Now it's the, all about the baby. So I think it's important to be aware of the dynamics in your relationship before you have a baby and being realistic about what the impact of having a baby is going to mean for that relationship. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, if you're in a relationship where it's much more sort of balanced, you both have um, you know similar expectations in nurturing, one's not particularly more of a nurturer, then I think the transition is going to be easier because um, it's, it doesn't feel like someone's needs are being put before mine for the mm-hmm. father. Um, or sometimes it might be the mother that, um, you know, everyone, everything was about me. Yeah. But so being aware of your relationship dynamics, I think, before you, before you started, and that's what we sort of cover in the Ready to Cope Guide, being aware of your relationship dynamics and what impact when someone else is going to be taking this time, how are you going to manage that? And what can you do to nurture your relationship? Um, even though you're really tired and everything, just making that time, um, whether it might be, you know, going out just for a coffee, mm-hmm. just having that time for the two of you uh, to, to reconnect as a couple um, and do those sort of things and, and being aware of it. Because once if you don't think about it, you'll just put the baby first and suddenly you'll look at across each other and go, well, who are you? <laughs> um, so it's really important that we are aware of that these things happen mm-hmm. and what can we do in place and realise that, it's not only you, this is part of the environment, this is part of the context, mm-hmm. uh, but what can we do about it proactively um, but also just knowing that it's not uh, it's not just us who is going through but there are things we can do to mitigate uh, those, those stresses and or risks. I, I think that's so crucial. Like uh, when I had my first baby, you know, I was a part of different mom groups and because Matt Lee was normal in the olden days, uh, but there was a book going around between the women and it was called How Not to Hate Your Husband. And like, nobody wants to be reading that book. Nobody wants to find out that their wife is reading that book. And unfortunately, you know, you're brought to a place going through all this that makes you say, okay, maybe I need to pick this up. So is it, do you think women that are dealing with these resentful thoughts more than the men? Or do you think that husbands and partners are dealing with that just as much? Uh, look, I think it's really important to say, well, where is the resentment coming from? Mm-hmm. If the resentment is coming from, so for, if it was a book like How to um, Not Hate Your Husband, maybe that resentment is coming from the fact that they get to go to work every day, <laughs> they get time on their own every day, mm-hmm. they still have adult company every day. Um, and, you know, I've heard uh, cases where, far, you know, going home and the baby's stressed, Fathers want to stay at work as long as possible. And so if you're in that position where you're needing support and your partner is not giving you the support, you are going to resent them. Um, and if fathers aren't taught to be aware of the needs and what's going on through things like the Ready to Cope Guide, they're oblivious to it. Um, and, um, you know, it takes for the woman to be assertive and assert her needs and explain what's going on. But often we feel like we should be able to handle this. I shouldn't be so demanding. But, you know, the baby belongs to both of you. It is a responsibility of both of you. And so it's really important um, that both of you take responsibility and acknowledge the demands and that you both do that. Similarly, uh, um, a father could have how not to hate your wife um, <laughs> exactly. because because the babies come first and they feel like their needs are no longer being met. Mm-hmm. So it's about resentment will build when you feel like your needs are not being met by your partner. 
But again, being aware of this early and looking at what you can both do to ensure your needs are met as much as they can be right. um, will stop that resentment from occurring. And Okay, so how do we know what's normal? Because obviously there's going to be more arguments, more disagreements, because now you're both in charge of raising this human and bringing up this human. And there's so many micro decisions that need to be done like every second of the day. So there's going to be more arguments. But this might be a stupid question. How do you know when it's normal? Or like, how do you know when you're arguing too much? Yeah, look, normal is going to vary from one person to another, one couple to another, and one family consternation to another. So having a baby with colic and reflux, for example, their normal is going to be very different from someone else's normal. Um, but I think the main thing to um, go into parenthood as, as a couple is to see this as being part of a team. You're a team and this is a joint a joint initiative, if you like, um, and you've got to work through this together. Mm -hmm. So the way that you do that might vary. Um, the roles that people play might vary. People bring different strengths and skills mm -hmm. uh, to parenthood. Um, I think sometimes women uh, think the baby's better with me, the baby's more settled with me. So as a result, they end up staying with time with the baby, but as a result, the baby never adjusts to the father. Right. So it's always then that, um, but by actually, the baby actually, it helps their cognitive and emotional development by adapting to different caregivers. Right. Um, it's actually stimulating growth and development in the baby. So although the baby might take a little bit more time to get used to it, they're actually developing and realizing that there is another normal for them too. And whereas if you think, well, the baby's more settled with me, I'll always end up doing it. Yeah. Then I'll always resent you because it always comes down to me. Whereas you need to share it and acknowledge that, well, you know, that things we do do things differently, but it's a different experience for the baby, but it can be a positive experience for the okay. baby as well. So whereas that can be beneficial to the baby, could it ever be detrimental to the baby, to the baby's development, to their health, whatever, to have one or two parents who are going through depression who are overly anxious who are you know having problems in their marriage like can it actually impact the baby's well-being yes because um certainly um anxiety and depression impact on every part of your ability to function and mm -hmm. depending on how severe it is um for example if we have severe anxiety and depression we know that it, um, it's going to impact on our quality of life um, our uh, severe depression, for example, we know that impacts on um, our uh, feelings, uh, to, you know, our interaction with the baby, the mother-infant or father-infant interaction. Um, we know in studies, for example, that if a mother has severe depression, she's actually, in observational studies, she's actually less likely to have eye contact with the baby. Oh, wow. And so a baby will always, when they're developing, look up at the parent to get that security. But if a mother is severely depressed, over time, the babies just look away. They don't even look to their mother anymore because they're getting nothing. That's so, so sad. It's devastating when you look at that. And that, of course, then affects the emotional and um, you know, cognitive and infant growth and development mm -hmm. because they're not getting that assurance from their mothers um, or their fathers because they're, they're, the parents are not emotionally available because they're unwell and they need treatment. So um, it's really important. This is exactly why we need to raise awareness of anxiety and depression um, for mothers and mm -hmm. fathers because it is so. It can be so debilitating, and it can impact on your ability to really care for the growth and development of the infant. That see that 
I'm still very emotional and hormonal from giving birth. Uh, but that did make me misty just thinking about that. And because no mom wants to be that in that position, like no mother, no woman gets pregnant and says, you know, oh, like I'm just going to ignore my baby when they're looking at me or I won't care that much. And that's so telling of how I think severe and consuming postpartum depression can be, which a lot of people don't think of. And I've even heard judgment about women suffering postpartum where, oh, they didn't bond with their baby, you know, like they should have fought through Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And that is so heartbreaking because nobody Mm. chooses that. Yeah. And, you know, we need to understand that this is part of the condition. The condition Mm -hmm. itself um, makes you feel um, helpless and hopeless and worthless. Um, You get no positive enjoyment out of anything. Everything is a chore. You have no energy, you have no motivation, and you get no joy from anything. So this is what depression feels like. So living with depression anyway is hard enough. Putting the demands of a baby on top of that, you can see why it can um, lead to becoming very severe very quickly. And that's why, you know, we talk about mother-infant interaction and how it can be impacted by moderate to severe, particularly severe postnatal depression. Um, and that's why, you know, mother and baby units where they can observe the mother and the baby together mm-hmm. is part of good treatment because it's about restoring and, and building the confidence of the mother and building the relationship as the mother begins to recover from the depression and making sure the baby is part of that recovery. So the babies need the nurtures as well. So if if a woman is going through this, either partner really, like if either partner in, you yeah. know, one of the parents is going through this, what should they do at the first thought of, oh man, this might be more than just the baby blues or whatever? Yeah. So the baby blues is just hormonal. So we talk mm-hmm. about the baby blues and um, because the blues is often associated with depression, people think it's, it's become very confusing. Right. So the baby blues is very different. We know about 80% of women experience the baby blues, which is the hormonal shift in the first eight to 10 days after having a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, anxiety or depression is formally diagnosed from one month after having the baby. So it's removed from the hormonal effects and um, can occur any time in the postnatal period. So in the first 12 months, if we're talking about postnatal depression. Um, but of course, it can occur after that as well. Yeah. Quite often, it develops in the 12 months, but was never identified or treated. So someone might get um, diagnosed at 18 months and they're saying, well, that's not postnatal depression anymore. It's just depression. Well, in fact, it doesn't matter if it's... Yeah. We call it postnatal depression because it's the context that makes it more likely. The treatments are the same. Mm-hmm. Um so it's really about um, recognising the early signs um, and getting help early. The faster you get help, the faster you recover, the greater range of treatment options are available. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily have to go on medication, for example, um, if you've identified it and you can give yourself, you know, have psychological treatments which give you control over the thinking and the behaviours that really lead to anxiety and depression becoming worse. So early intervention is absolutely important Um, in the same way that we need to treat gestational diabetes early or any other physical condition early. And that's why we need to be screening for these conditions so that we do identify them early and not wait until the condition is well and truly established and there's started to be negative effects from having the condition 
which wasn't identified or treated early. Yeah, and you think like we have we have a great healthcare system in Canada, but I just think of so many of the difficulties that kids develop. And I'm a teacher as well, uh, and go through school with and you know everything is cyclical. I'm not going to lay blame on depression, you know, overtaking one family's life for causing a kid to grow up any certain way, because obviously there are so many factors. But I'm just wondering if identifying and treating little things like this along the way could honestly just make for a way healthier population, like way uh, a population that is more mentally healthy. And that then I would assume would impact their physical health and everything. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a big part of the anxiety and depression is um, perpetuated by your thinking styles, mm. and that's affected by the, by, the, by the way you feel and then affects the way you behave. So, for example, if I'm someone experiencing depression, um, I'm feeling sad or down, I've got no interest or pleasure in anything, nothing's worth um, doing, I don't have the energy and motivation, so I'm going to be very negative about everything. Yeah. So then I'm going to look at things negatively. Now, if I'm talking and have negative talk about everything around my children, my children are going to start thinking, well, that's, yeah. that's, you know, that's the context. And, and similarly, if I'm anxious, I'm going to be very worried about everything. I'm going to see things as more dangerous as they really are. I'm going to be talking like that with my children. Get off the trampoline because you're going to do this. Don't do this because da 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 da, da. And that's sort of that getting children to view the world with this sort of mm-hmm. fear or negativity, which can then affect their thinking styles and the, the way they interpret the world around them. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the psychological treatments are so good because it's about getting back that control. It's about taking control of the way that you might be, um, you might have grown up with that sort of thinking um, or it might, whatever. It's, it's about understanding yeah. the mechanisms that are maintaining anxiety and depression and giving you back that control by getting that insight into what is maintaining these thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. and how you can get on top of that. And that can then help alleviate the symptoms and getting back on with, you know, being the person you are yeah. without living with all this other distress and um feelings of anxiety and depression going on. Speaking of alleviating feelings, so before I depart from you in this conversation, I have a couple questions uh, from listeners. And the first one is from Shane. And he came in with a crying baby uh, just to write this down <laughs> and make sure that I want that I was going to ask you. So to deal with his anxiety, like I said, he's working two full-time jobs on top of being a father and his office is in the same place as his home. And it's hectic to say the least. Mm -hmm. So he recently got uh, CBD oil from our federal government website because it's now legal in Canada. Taking that in the night times or whatever to help him sleep, help his brain wind down. He wants to know, he just put CBD oil question mark, good question mark. I guess he wants to know if that is an okay way to be dealing with the stresses that he's going through and his anxiety. Um, look, so when it comes, this is where it's really important to look at clinical practice guidelines. So mm-hmm. guidelines and treatments are around what is evidence-based. Um, so there has been, uh, you know, in terms of anxiety, certainly um, we know that a range, there's a range of relaxation strategies that can be helpful. Uh, some people find um, some that there is very little evidence around herbal treatments. Okay, um, like that's CBD. For a lot of these like, okay. 
But quite often, I think it's important to recognise that they haven't necessarily been around or necessarily been in clinical trials where they're compared to placebos or compared to other treatments quite often. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the, at the moment, um, there isn't any evidence or there's very little evidence, if any. Uh, there wouldn't be strong, robust evidence to say we would recommend this universally or okay. globally. But that might be because there's not enough um, research in the area and mm-hmm. often... Sadly, um, you know, I think it must be very frustrating for people in that area that they don't get the same money to do trials of different things as pharmaceutical companies do. Mm-hmm. So, um, so look, I think it's working out what works well for you, um, but being mindful that there is a lot of um, a lot of things out there that people think, you, you know, a lot of it's about marketing. Um, but you know, it's it's about work for you, and sometimes that might even be a placebo effect. But um, if it, you know, because we don't know. So it's about working out what's right. You know, the good old fashioned things like where possible, some exercise uh, can certainly help with sleep. Being aware of thinking if you're worrying about things, if you're going to bed, worrying about particular things, write down what those thoughts are, challenge them, look at what solutions. So that will give you a greater sense of control. By actually processing the thought and, um, you're more likely to be able to let it go then and it won't be can continually coming back and causing you that anxiety because um, people think, oh, just stop thinking about it and they try and quash the thought. The thought's actually going to just keep coming back because you haven't processed it to let it go. So if you are having reoccurring thoughts or worrying about things, you know, taking the time to process them, work through them either individually or as a couple and then you're more likely to, it won't be causing the same level of anxiety and stress. So that's another really important strategy. So there's things physically, deep breathing, muscle relaxation, mm-hmm. so things you can do physically um, to help you relax um, and help with anxiety. Also mentally by addressing any worrying thoughts or concerns that you have. Um, and then things like exercise as well to release the stress and tension and get you in a better state of tiredness mm-hmm. for a more sound sleep. Uh, so they're three very natural, very efficient strategies. Um that I'd always recommend first, but then, you know, um, the, the evidence is really out when it comes to a lot of these other herbal um, or other interventions. No, that's that's fascinating to know because you ask around and people say, oh, yeah, it's the best work for me. But then again, you don't know if it's placebo or what uh, What else maybe they're putting in that CBD oil. Um, but Dr. Nicole, we are going to end here. I, I feel bad that I've taken up so much of your time, but it was a fascinating conversation and I truly, truly do appreciate you being here with us today. So if folks from Canada, the US, Europe, all of our listeners want to follow along with you, want to learn more about COPE, uh, where can they find you in your organization? Absolutely. So we have a very extensive website which covers all of these topics and more that we've covered today uh, around the, the, the challenges that can come with uh, becoming a parent. And that ranges from, you know, problems with conceiving and fertility, pregnancy, birth um, and the postnatal period. And that's at cope.org.au. Um, and if people are interested to uh, expecting a baby or have a new baby and they want to sign up to the Ready to Cope Guide, uh, they can find that on the website or just go to readytocope.org.au. Uh, simply indicate how many weeks pregnant, how, how old your baby is, and you'll then get uh, free information every week, 10 days. Uh, that's going to be timely and really give you all those insights and strategies that no one else is talking about. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's so fantastic. And honestly, I really appreciate it because even though I've done it once and even though I'm two months in with my new baby, it is 
hellish sometimes, <laughs> as much as I don't like to say. It's wonderful and it's hellish. Uh, but truly, Nicole, thank you. Thanks so much. So, that well, Alex, great interview. <laughs> Again, you. I didn't edit this interview. I didn't have time. We were at a cottage doing a photo shoot. So I don't know if this was good or not, but I got an email from her assistant who said it went really well. So good no, job. I, I had a great time with Dr. Nicole, Dr. Hyatt. And she's just, she's so good at what she does. She's really a master in in helping women in my position, helping women who are going to be in my position. So yeah, no, it was fantastic. And she has that charming Australian accent. Oh, she does. So that's the part I did here because you know, <laughs> I got the greetings down. But okay, now it's the time that I really enjoy where we answer questions. Now we've, we've switched it up a little bit where Alex is producing this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So Alex is picking the creme de la creme. So if your question isn't answered in this portion, it's just because Alex thought it was shit. So the first question in our mailbag today, how did both of you know it was the right time to become parents? For me, I'll say, I just think that it was so much of the same thing for so long, like basically from the time I was 19 to 29, I'd been doing the same thing and it was great and I loved it, but I just think that we were both ready to do something new and kind of take on a different challenge and have fun in a different way. And there wasn't too much discussion. I'd say like a couple months before we ended up having Lucy, we were like, ah, oh, yeah, it'd be fun to have a baby. It'd be fun to have a baby. And then the night of, we were like, let's make a baby. And then we did. And No, it wasn't that kind of simple. Th- it wasn't that simplified. We, well, I don't know. We kind of threw ourselves in the fire. Like we, we didn't plan it out. Yes, we did. As I think a lot of people do, though. Yeah, I think we did. I just think we we planned it out at an earlier stage than most people do right. in their relationship because we had discussed, oh, at this time we're going to because you had wanted to to drink a little bit, mm-hmm. have a good summer, so we wanted to do it at the end of the summer. So I think you're oversimplifying a little bit. But how I knew I wanted to have kids with like even before our first date, I talk about this often, but something about having met you five years prior to our first date i knew your essence and your vibe and from what i heard about you i'm like i'm going to marry this girl and have two kids i just had a feeling (laughs) i'm not a cocky guy either overconfident but i felt like this is really gonna work out Mm -hmm. if we have a good first date which i was really banking on and preparing for and then when it went well i was like i think we're gonna have kids together and, you know, I, I wasn't a spring chicken, but I was so done, too. It, it's my mm-hmm. age combined with the fact that I was going on Tinder and everyone felt so disposable on Tinder. Yeah. Like the both the people I was dating and the way I felt, I felt disposable. And a lot of these women, if I went on a date and it was okay, sometimes you'd never hear from them again. Like there wasn't even a chance to gestate unless the first date was a 10 out of 10 home run. Right. But you're always thinking about... Oh, something better is around the corner. And what I really loved about you is you didn't have that Tinder mentality because you weren't on Tinder, which is, oh, if this date's an 8 out of 10, maybe a 9 out of 10 is around the corner. And we probably had an 8 out of 10 first date. You you think only 8 out of 10? Well, for me, it was 10 out of 10. I had a 10 out of 10 great time. But I don't think you were dating a ton. So I think an 8 out of I 10. Wasn't, I, I think an 8 out of 10 for yeah. you can feel like a 10. Because maybe you had a bunch no, of. No, Shane. We had. A, I it was. It was fun. Well, the one. Okay. Maybe you're right about the 8 out of the 10. Because 
we weren't so it wasn't just the two of us like we weren't so present together there were a lot of people out that night and it was like it was a good time in general well well, your behavior to be quite honest like I was enamored with you and very like into you that I was blinded by how terribly rude you were on our date (laughs) I've never been treated like that before. I was, I think, all right. Well, when we went downtown, when you asked me, because you messaged me that afternoon and you said, you know, you said, hey, I got your number from your cousin, blah, blah. We were chatting over text. I was already drinking with my girlfriends. And then you're like, do you want to go on a date with me? I said, yeah, of course. And he said, well, do you want to go like in a few hours? Strike when the iron is lukewarm. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So basically I just, you know, threw on another pair of pants guzzled the rest of my glass of wine and we met up so I was kind of already drunk and then we go out to this bar I'm excited to see you I'm nervous I'm full of that like nervous energy then I'm seeing other people and I want you to think I'm cool but I'm also excited to see these other people and I also I knew I was gonna like you too and right before I went down to meet you like obviously me and my girlfriends were going through every single picture you have on Instagram like every single one and I'm like this guy's like this guy's hot like this is gonna be this is gonna be fun and you sounded funny you were super nice and uh we really lurked you hard for like you know the hour prior to us meeting so which friends were these Victoria and Sarah oh nice yeah, so I was I was very excited and I had this like very crazy energy. But at the same time, like I knew how much I, you know, was going to like you and I, I wanted to play it cool. I played it way too cool and it was mm-hmm. definitely rude. What's so funny too about you is, and I talked about this in my way too long wedding speech, but anyway, it's like <laughs> that you don't really have a facade the way I do. So you, in the first couple dates that we went on, you kind of put on a facade of somebody who's aloof or not necessarily super interested into the date and they're more a people person i i put i kept that going for a few months i think when we'd go out yeah when we went out it was always this game of oh i don't really like him that much and i think you had a presupposed notion of me or you had heard something that oh you got to keep his interest he gets bored quick or something i felt like you had gotten information that was totally not true and that made you react in a way that was not cool well, I just, I knew that you had lots of girlfriends and... I didn't have lots of girlfriends. That's that's a misnomer. I had only had four girlfriends, maybe five in my mm-hmm. life. And each of my relationships was over two and a half years long. That's pretty good. That's a great track record. Yeah. So you, and just because the relationships ended badly, like a, wo- <laughs> a woman's scorn, I think is a real thing. Not that I was some prince, but I, you know, I was in my twenties, and no, people aren't normal in their twenties. Everyone's a psychopath no, I, on drugs and alcohol. Well, Shane, how old was I when we met? Twenty six. Yeah, yeah, you are. Bad. There you go. There you go. I was, I was a pure twenty something year old. But, but I guess what I'm saying to you is, you were still learning. You, yeah, you were adapting to what you thought I was instead of just embracing how we both were together. But I still got, I still got you in the sack, and I still got the ring. Even with that charade. I'm not the hardest guy to get in the sack. (laughs) Second question. Does it take much convincing to get guests to come on your show? Yeah, sometimes. It's it's funny. It's like the guests you'd think would take a lot of coaxing. It's like, sure, dude, that sounds fun. Here's my number. Yeah, they'll just give me their phone number and they'll start texting me. And I'm like, wow, I'm texting this person I've really liked forever. Uh, This just happened with Simon Rex, who I'm a huge fan of. He just started 
text, gave me his number, started texting me, or Ben Lee, who when I was 17, I would like listen to his album every night. And the first email I sent to him to be on the show, he just said, sure, one word. And then he said, that works. And then he said, here's my number. So that was the text exchange. And my emails were like so long and his were less than five words each email. But then you'll get somebody who you're like, this person, of course, will be on the pod. And then their manager's like, well, let's have a Zoom meeting. And then you have a Zoom meeting with some strange manager. And then they're like, well, we're going to have to talk to this And then we're going to circle back to you. And then It's always (laughs) circling back. That word is used so much in manager emails. I don't know. I I guess when you're up at a certain level, Mm -hmm. you don't worry too much. Like a person like Jillian Harris is just so cool and comfortable in her skin. But when you're kind of at that middling level, sometimes you really want to be perceived as a person who only does the creme de la creme. Which, honestly, I think we are the creme de la creme. I think we're the creme de la creme. And I could be, well, I am delusional, but (laughs) at least I know I'm delusional. What's the next question? All right, the next question. Alex, will you do some posts on skincare makeup routine? Not really my thing. I'm not an expert in this, but I will share what I use because it does work for me. So I Is this I, influenced by Skinny Confidential, your stuff? Some of the things are. So I actually use a lot of masks that I have seen on her page. So I use Peter Thomas Ross masks. Uh, I really like the 24 karat gold one and the Irish Moore mud mask. I always wash and I have been with like for years with Origins Checks and Balances. They have an awesome mask too, Origins Rose Clay Mask. And then I found a woman at Sephora uh, was helping me out one day because I was trying to find a good face oil because I I have combination skin, but oils are so hydrating. Is it controversial if I say... Controversial. Controversial. Okay, I won't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she helped me find a really great face oil and I love it because it's an oil. And I was like so scared of oils at first because you just think of them being so heavy and greasy and not sinking in, but it's really light. It goes in your skin beautifully and it smells amazing. It is the herbivore oil. So check it out. Sephora has it. It's amazing. I use herbivore orchid. And lastly, like my, the cream that I'm using right now, because the cream I used to use is stop being produced. I don't know why that sucks, but I'm just using Andalou age defying cream. smells like goji berry and all natural. It's just, it's so nice. Shane, you use it too. Yeah. But when I, I woke up, my nose was bleeding. Well, that's because I think you, that's not from the cream, babe. So I recently started getting, and this is because of our interview with Skinny Confidential. She was talking about her husband's face routine Mm -hmm. and she told Shane to start like exfoliating, exfoliating and moisturizing. So Shane has like the sponge, like a natural sponge. And I told him to start exfoliating, you know, rubbing in small circles on his face and then use my moisturizer after because it's anti-aging. It's really nice. And you, unfortunately, I think, exfoliated your nose too hard and, like, cut yourself. No, uh, this happened every time I did it. And that's not the moisturizer. Moisturizer is not going to make you bleed. Well, it's a weird coincidence that <laughs> scares me. But who, between you and I, who do you think is going to age better? Okay, you have freak genes uh, for skin. Like, like freak genes. Okay, In so a good way? Shane's grandmother, who is, how old is grandma? almost 90 okay grandma's almost 90 she's yeah she's 89 or 90 soon and her skin is beautiful like it's so beautiful it's she's obviously wrinkled but it's 
like her skin is so delicate almost and they're like smooth wrinkles it's the best rather skin than ever. yeah but they're not like harsh wrinkles and they don't look thick you know how sometimes when you get old your your face can look thick or something hers doesn't and it's just so beautiful and like i'm looking at shane's forehead right now so i'm only 31 shane is 37 and you have far fewer wrinkles in your forehead than me and you frown more than me and you should have Many more, and you definitely don't. But I don't necessarily think wrinkles look bad. And that's what I'm always thinking. Why is aging mean you look worse? And I guess because I'm a man, I I always thought, oh, I look better as I get older because that's potentially a myth. But they always say, oh, men age gracefully or whatever. So I'm like, oh, aging is a good thing. But women hate aging, and they look at it as like, now I'm ugly. Why, Why is that? It has to do solely with male perception. With I don't look at that. Like I think I like older though. But I, young people kind of freak me out, especially as I get older. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I hate young people. Young you know? people freak me out too. But but here's the thing: when you think of the ideal woman, she's not from, young though. She's not because she no. she typically is. I I think in society she is. I think ideal woman, honestly, I'm not just like mm-hmm. placating to the audience here, would be 45. You're not placating to the audience? Not at all. I like 100%, this. Okay. 100%. This to me, take. like, and I think for a man, 45 is good too. Like, to me, that's... I think, I think it's a good age. I, ideal. Because you got all that distinguished thing going on and you're still physically capable. Okay, I have a question about this. So, as I'm getting older, like my 20s were you know fun they were great but they're a shit show and like shane and i were talking about earlier you're just you're an idiot so you know you look back on it and some nights make you cringe 30s i'm loving so far i'm feeling more myself than i ever have and i'm hoping that that only continues into my 40s mm-hmm. so do you think that people are maybe more attractive at 45 because they have this like confidence and this like confidence is sexy that's hands down everybody can agree on do you think it's because of that or do you think that it's honestly just that yeah i think it's physically too i like like kind of laugh lines i I like these lines on the eyes on the eyes i really like that that's it that's a fa- those are famous lines that make men look good when they're uh, aging yeah i like i like that i also feel like 40 year olds are chill because most of them mm-hmm have gone through the kid phase yeah so they're not all like bonkers anxiety the the drive that you have in your 30s where you're trying to really succeed or make it by the time you're 40 usually you're just like whatever i just want to enjoy my life or Mm -hmm. you've made it and you've reached your career goals or whatever they may be and you're just more comfortable yeah Yeah. no i like that take i want to say that i i'm going to be feeling like that and i'm going to be able to age happily Like I plan on aging gracefully in the sense that I think it's a weird way to put it anyway, but in the sense that, you know, I don't think as right now, anyway, I don't think I'm going to be getting things done to keep me looking younger. I really hope you're not. It wouldn't fit in with me and my vibe. And I don't think I could bring myself to do it just because I don't think for me it works, but I I don't know. I like, am I going to have a freak out? Like, did you ever have a freak out? You still look so young, though, and your face mm-hmm. looks the same as it did when you were 30. Like, but did you ever have a moment where you looked in the mirror and you're like, oh, man, I'm looking kind of old? No, I, I, do, I don't have those moments. I only have moments where I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, I look like I'm not 
healthy right now. I look right. stressed out. And when I get stressed out, it's weird. My skin doesn't sit on my face the same. Mm-hmm. And when I've had a nice restful sleep and I'm feeling happy, everything just, I look like me. And there's sometimes I feel like I don't look like me. And yeah. I can tell I'm going through some sort of anxiety or some big project and you can see it on my face that something's going on in the background. Yeah, for me, when I look in the mirror and I know that I'm having right now sleepless nights because the baby or just like extra exhausted because the bags under my eyes do get crazy. Like mm-hmm. they get real crazy. And then the rest of my skin, I, I'm i not one for frowning. As I said, Shane probably wears that more than I do just naturally. But I'll end up getting just like a permanent frown for a couple days when I'm feeling so tired. And it's weird to see that in a photo or in the mirror or whatever. But bring us back to the question of Shane. Do you like that face cream? I don't know. I'm not super into face creams. All right. So I'm agnostic towards it. There you go. Agnostic towards face cream. And and much like CBD and everything else, I'm skeptical of the effectiveness of everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, the only thing I'm not skeptical of, and this is a part of my skin routine, breast milk on everything. I do breast milk face on my face every single night before bed. I put it on before the oils, before the creams. I use it on the nights that I'm not using the oil. Uh, and then I put my cream on top of it and yeah. it keeps my skin good. And when I was pregnant with Betty, I was producing a lot of colostrum from, I'd say, six months onward. And when I was putting the colostrum on my face, that was a revelation. You could sell that stuff to like, you know, rich people who want to look great for I'm sure top dollar because my skin was better than it has ever been in my entire life. It was insane. Well, I think the makeup of your own breast milk too is meant for your yeah. body and your child. I don't think it works the same. Remember okay. that show we watched? Yeah. But I wonder what it's like for skin though. And I want to do research on that. If you could use somebody else's breast milk to improve your skin, that'd be interesting. But if you are producing milk, get it on. Next question. Can you recommend some Instagram pages to follow? So I'm going to throw a few out at you. So if you're a mom, want to follow things like that, check out Taking Care of Babies for Sleep, Feeding Littles for Baby Led Weaning, Big Little Feelings, and Janet Lansbury for dealing with like behavior problems issues that parents face and then rebel mamas just for you know cool mom advice things like that in regards to beauty i would go for sure former podcast skinny confidential she's the best and then uh aaron from raw beauty talks another great one aaron chalor and the skinny confidential Mm -hmm. yes thank you and other accounts that I would suggest follow, there is The Conscious Kid. So they do parenting and education through a racial lens and kind of help you guide your conversations with your kids or your students properly in, in that because that's so tricky. Teachers for Black Lives, if you are a teacher, they help support black, indigenous, and students of color and help you like kind of plan lessons out for that. Serena Kerrigan, I only just found out about her like maybe a month ago and I have had so much fun following her. So she has a show called Let's Fucking Date and she goes on dates with guys over Instagram Live and like real dates, like they'll sit there for ages and they'll be drinking, they'll be getting to know each other, having fun and then you can kind of like chime in in the comments. It's hilarious and you have to check it out and Serena's vibe in general is just... Like, it's, it's awesome. It's so badass. Check it out. Lastly, Moon and Cheese for inspiration for, like, 
self-portraits, cheese is spelt with a Z, and NBA fashion fits because I get so much fun watching what all the NBA players are wearing to the games. Yeah, Moon and Cheese is one I'm totally down with. Mm-hmm. That's an awesome page. Just like look it up right now. At a glance, you'll be like, this girl That's is amazing. So cool. This woman is amazing. What else we have? Our next question is, does Lucy have a bike and what age should I start teaching my toddler? So Shane, you you take Lucy out on her like bike. I say that with air quotes more than I do. It's like a thing that she sits in and you push. Yeah, is that, are we calling that a bike? I guess so. That's the closest it's like a training, thing. A training bike? I don't know. Like, so we you go walking at the park sometimes and we'll see like what looks like a 12-month-old riding <laughs> by in a bike. And we're like, what the hell? And like no yeah. training reels, nothing. So apparently some kids have can just do it really young. I don't know what their parents are doing. But Lucy likes to be pushed. Sometimes mm-hmm. she's the biggest fraidy cat in the world and sometimes she just wants to go a hundred miles an hour and doesn't care about getting terribly injured yeah i don't know when she's going to actually ride a a two-wheel bike on her own for me i was a very late bloomer i had a terrible experience with uh my parents teaching me it's like it actually created trauma for me uh but is is that why you think you learned to drive later in life too (laughs) 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 okay so what just happened there is we did an interview with Simon Rex oh, not too long ago. And I talk about this trauma I have that it actually made me not want to learn to drive because I had a bad experience learning to ride a bicycle. So Alice just played it off like she looked into my soul and pulled that out no, through just so, knowing. But so yeah, yeah, that is true, Alex. But since you know this episode airs before the Simon Rex thing, you want to seem like you know me. No, you know what? I just had that question pop out in my brain and that's why it popped in my brain because we just did that interview. So I was looking this up online because I was like, when is a good time? Because for, you know, for us to teach Lucy how to ride her bike, because we haven't really been forcing it or really, we haven't been doing it much in the no, past no, but anyway. I think you just know when you know. It's like every kid has certain mm-hmm. gifts, much like every person has certain gifts. Lucy's very verbal. Yeah. So that's her super talent. She's not overly, like, I, she is athletic, but she's not overly, like, I want to ride a bike or, like, yeah. I'm going to swim early. She doesn't feel like that mm-hmm. vibe. And I have learning like I, I learned to tie my shoes late. I learned to write late. I'm still learning how to write, I feel like, <laughs> especially cursive. I find it impossible in printing. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if it's in the cards for her to be one of these mm-hmm. people who learns how to ride a bike. Yeah, so I think everyone at their own pace. As I question myself when we see these parents with kids who look like they're two and riding with no training wheels, I did research it and kids typically learn between the ages of three and eight that's a huge yeah that's like a huge gap right and kids are so developmentally different from ages three to eight so i would not get concerned if you are not doing this on time or if you think you're doing it too early the average age within that is five and i was researching this thing called a balance bike I had never heard of this before, but it's a bike with no brakes and no pedals. And basically, it's like for toddlers. So this is what you might start a two-year-old or a three-year-old, maybe a four-year-old on if they have no experience. They sit on it and they just kind of, I guess, like push with their feet and they learn how to steer and balance, which are like the two most fundamental things about learning 
you know, how to ride a two-wheeler. And it teaches them that before they add pedaling into the equation. So I've read that that's a good way to teach your kid. Yeah, ease them in, try it out. If, they, yeah. if it doesn't take, it doesn't take. Most people by the age of 12 know how to ride a bike. So yeah. just because the kid takes to it at three doesn't mean he's going to be a championship DMX rider. <laughs> Wait, DMX is a D- rapper. BMX. <laughs> Stop. Drop. Shut him down. Open up shop. What's the next question? All right. Have you been watching any good movies or TV shows lately? The only one I can think of, which we really enjoyed, was Seth Rogen's American Pickle. Yeah, I like that. It was like a classic. It really knew what it wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a, a movie from like a, another era. In fact, one of the characters is from another era. But what I mean is it felt like a comedy from the 70s. The storyline went where it went and was at yeah. its own pace. And it got really silly at sometimes, But it always maintained its heart. And yeah. I find a lot of movies, it's kind of paint by numbers, and that one felt a little different to no, me. No, I agree. I, I liked it in every regard, so I do highly suggest that one. And other than that, we've only been watching basketball games. So well, We watched this ridiculous Nicolas Cage movie called oh Mandy. And it's the most like whacked out movie, and not necessarily in a good way. It's just kind of crazy. It's wacky. It's crazy for crazy's sake. I love Nicolas Cage, but that one... It's just, it wasn't Nicolas Cagey in the way that's like you're laughing because it's so bad. And it, See, we, like, it wasn't so bad, it's good. We had fun watching it, but it was like, it was a trip. And it took us three nights to get through. Yeah. Like, if you're into mushrooms, I would have <laughs> mushrooms and watch it. All right. And our last question for the night it's an interesting one. So, should parents of sons let them wee wherever? Currently, toilet training my daughter, and she wears nappies when we're out. So, this is interesting, and I wanted to get. Shane's perspective on this like did, were you taught that you could just pull down and go wherever or or what like how did how does that work for well boys? I think we need to define wherever so like publicly publicly like if we're in a Walmart would my dad say drop it and would I pee <laughs> on the floor no but if we were on hiking mm-hmm. and I really had to pee and it's between that or peeing my pants I'd pee on the tree and if someone walked by it wouldn't be like put that thing away. Mm. It was it was acceptable. So if we had a son, would we teach him that he could just kind of whip it out wherever? I think if you have the tools, use them. Having a penis can be an advantage in, well, in those situations. Well, then what about a daughter? So just say we had two kids, we're hiking, and the boy had to go pee, and you're like, okay, son, go right here. And the daughter also had to go pee really bad. And then instead of rushing with both kids to find a bathroom, the son got to relieve himself, and the daughter had to hold it in until we found somewhere. Like, what What do we do? Because honestly, I, if I'm stuck, I'll pee outside. I don't care. So would I just like teach her how to squat down and pee? Probably, I guess, in our situation. We're not too... Because I, I was reading about how it could be like a, a gender issue or like a... You know what I mean? Like a sexist issue, kind of. Like I was reading different parents' perspectives on it. Well, I think it's just practically a Mm -hmm. man has something between their legs that makes it easier to aim. And I'm sure you could squat and pee as an adult woman. But to teach a two-year-old girl that might be harder than a two-year-old boy how he can project his pee. Mm -hmm. So I think think for a boy, it just comes naturally. And it's just like basic physics, right? So in your scenario where both Mm -hmm. kids have to pee... I don't know. I might say, okay, Timmy, you go pee. I'm going to start walking towards this porta potty here, right. or I'm going to start walking towards this Walmart, and we're going to go to the washroom, and you run and catch up to us. Mm-hmm. So, like, the, the question asker said that she's toilet training her daughter right now. So, if you're just starting to teach your kids, 
you know, how to go to the bathroom on their own, you know, I'd encourage them to find a bathroom. And like, if you are out for a hike, if there's a porta potty that's accessible, go there first, unless it's going to be an accident, especially since they're just learning. They, they, you know, I think that they should learn where to do these things. I think bathrooms always number one, right? Well, I, I think so, but I don't know. Like, this is the thing. I don't know. Like, do some people take pride in whipping the willy out and just like, like peeing in public like trails? No, <laughs> no one's taking pride. <laughs> well, no, because I went to high school with guys who would like whip it out and pee in the snow and it was all disgusting. And then there's pee snow. And yeah, when we first met too, you took me to some parties and introduced me to some of your <laughs> friends and a lot of them were guys. I was blown away by the like, I don't know. Like the behaviors of these gentlemen. <laughs> Gentleman's the, a nice word. Well, the behaviors of these not so gentlemen, I'll say. Like this mm-hmm. was, I I'm couldn't. Twenty six, be- idiots, baby. But I, you're I was, an idiot in your twenties. There you have it. We, if you gotta, and otherwise find a bathroom. But we gotta go right now, <laughs> and I don't mean number one or number two. I'm not <laughs> implying we, we're going number two. What I'm saying is we're just gonna end the podcast because this was the longest thing ever and thank you if you have been with us this whole time good for you yeah uh so thank you so much for listening to this This family Family tree Tree Podcast, podcast episode 53